Chords Podcast with your host, John. Your other host, Steve. And your other, other hosts, Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. Yeah, <laughs> you had two. What do you call it? That's mostly a Qualifiers. gag. Qualifiers? That's actually a gag I stole from the Epic Podcast. They do that sometimes. Other host and other, other host. They just keep getting less important as you go down the line. You know that, right? Uh, no, it's the best for last, last I checked. Says the guy uh, to the yeah. guy who actually introduced, like, 99.9% of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, and you were the last for the almost, like, 99.9% hey, of the podcast. But I talk the most overall. That's so, true. Like, know. the less we have him talk in the beginning, the better, because he never shuts up otherwise. Well, cor- I've yeah. cordoned that. That's not fair. First you I took my lyrics, then you took our diatribs, then you took all the other stuff. Diatribs? Something like that. I don't know. It's a word. What I'm region What region are you from? I have no idea at this moment. Uh, today, <laughs> <laughs> on a completely different track, today we're going to be listening to Radiohead and their new album, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Now, it's been a pretty long time since I've listened to Radiohead, about 15 years, but it was one of those bands that in a lot of ways introduced me to a new genre. The way Floyd introduced me to psychedelic Beastie Boys to rap rock or uh, Green Day and Blink to punk, Mm. Radiohead showed me what alt-rock is. And in a lot of ways, they were kind of the guys that, they didn't create, but they perpetuated the idea of what alt-rock is. Yeah, Yeah, and you'd you'd think that for that very reason, they would have been there in my history, but frankly, Radiohead was once uh, a gaping hole in my music knowledge, perpetuated by the fact that I always got a little bit touchy around those crowds who were like, you're not complete without some Radiohead, dude. You well, can't know music without Radiohead, you need, dude. You need Karma Police and Paranoid Android in your life. I mean, those two tracks... Yeah, well, too for- bad. I was like, f*** you, what a pretentious setup that is. Just <laughs> recommend the band and be done with it. Ease up on the it's gonna rock my world sh-. There's other areas of genius to draw from. Uh, now, disclaimer, I've totally pulled that same crap on other people. But Yeah, part- I was just gonna say, I was gonna call <laughs> bullshit a minute ago. But part of being an adult is about recognition, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, with all that said, when I graduated from my impudence and I considered the band, I had to, at least on one level, appreciate what Radiohead meant in the musicology sense, because, as John said, there really wouldn't be much of an alt-rock community without Radiohead, or at least it wouldn't look like it does today. I mean, just the sheer number of bands that they influenced is like... God, for years, all I was doing was just getting into bands who, in one interview after the other, pledged their whole style to the existence of Radiohead. And so, I had to check them out. I looked back. And in truth, it was quite mixed. On one hand, I saw shades of things that were totally up my alley, that moved me greatly. And, in fact, that started long before I even got into the band. I recall that very often I would hear a a, a song on someone's stereo, and I'd ask them, Ooh, who's this crafty new alt-rock band? That's Radiohead. 97. 
what? <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. But then on the other hand, naturally, there are those times when they just seemed a little tainted, perhaps, by the bands that I knew of in advance who had the advantage of being their successors, of being able to borrow from Radiohead and build upon their ideas, and occasionally exceeding them in scope. Uh, that's just what I was exposed to first. So the nostalgia bonus, sadly, is just not there for me. But for sure, when they were releasing OK Computer and The Benz and Kid A, they were rocking the world. Irrefutably, their litany of disciples, both listener and artist alike, are proof of that. And that leads us to A Moonshaped Pool, the first release by Radiohead that came out in a time when I was and am actively interested in hearing what they have to say, and to not fall behind on the inevitable obsession that will follow and that will surround this album. Uh, fun fact, I actually tried to pick this album several weeks ago, uh, but I couldn't, because <laughs> we maintain our standing that the album has to be on Spotify, and for a good while after its release, it was not on Spotify. That was my fault uh, for not double-checking beforehand. Um, but, you know, I, I actually did know that Tom York had his issues with Spotify going back a long way. He has issues with Spotify as not really allowing a lot of new music to come forward in the market yeah. and also obviously not paying artists enough. Uh, so there's certainly a lot to be angry over, but we can only be accessible if the artist is accessible. So for whatever landed them at Spotify now, we are incredibly thankful. Yeah. Uh, Radiohead's a band that I was always familiar with, and I did a lot of fighting with people. I, I would say that they're a greatest hits band for me. What I mean by greatest hits band, for those who don't know what that obvious term means, I'll explain it anyway, um, that it's a band that I don't really have any of the albums, but I know all the big hits, the big singles, and if they had a greatest hits, I would buy it or listen to it. Um, I'm, I'm the same sort of way, with the exception of OK Computer. That was the first album I got. I had to I had to wear that CD out yeah. after a while, but for everything else, yeah, I'm right there on the same page as you. But, but that said, I'm someone who knows enough of their work to get annoyed with all the other Radiohead fans when someone goes, man, Creep is their best song. Yeah. yeah. You know? Now, to say, though, about Creep, I still really like that song. I will always like that song. And I think it's because I heard it at a time when I was meant to hear Creep because I felt the way Tom York felt. You know, I'm in high school when that song came out. So it resonated with me. That said... There are just songs that get played into the ground. Right. It's, just, it's inevitable. And, and, and that song did, but now at a place where I don't really listen to the radio anymore, I choose my own music to listen to, it's still very enjoyable to go back to that song and enjoy it all over again. But, you know, songs like Paranoid Android and Karma Police will always be my favorite. Yeah, they're one and two Because of also the, the MTV generation. Like, I remember those music videos so clearly. Uh, the paranoid android weird animation mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, it, was, it, it so, was so, like, stark yet clear-cut. And so that's something about Radiohead that I've always latched onto also is that their music takes me somewhere most of the time. Like, I don't just get wrapped up in what the music is saying. I actually get transported to a location or a setting or a place. And so that plays into a lot of what I'm familiar with from their past. And I appreciate them for that because also, like I said, they influenced a lot of people who kind of perpetuated that tradition and, and moved the alternative rock into something else. Moved rock in general into something else. Yeah. Where To the point where now people can't even place bands anymore because it's just like, uh, it's art. Yeah. It's, it's art. And just leave it at that. So yeah, I have to give Radiohead credit for what they were trying. To be fair, there's also the other faction of Radiohead fans, the faction that just kind of dismissed them after they got more more arty. Yeah, because you know, they wanted they wanted creep. the accessible yeah, tracks, yeah. you know, from the '90s. Which was but, never gonna be their yeah, thing. But they did good stuff in the '90s too. So uh, yeah, it's all just kind of a kind of a blur right now for me. So that's why I'm really eager to take it on and really go through this album with a fine tooth comb. All right. Well, on that note, why don't we jump into the first track, "Burn the Witch," which. 
when I first heard the title, I went, I, I know that title. What do I know it from? Turns out it's a one of my favorite tracks by Queens of the Stone Age on one of their previous records. It's also called Burn the Witch. Um, but non sequiturs aside, um, I really like this track a lot. I like that we get strings pretty much right out of the gate from the beginning, which, I mean, is not super foreign for a Radiohead track. I mean, they use instrumentation really well. well but see, not strings in the manner that we get later on this album. That's it, true. It's actually the first, the first thing worth observing after you take in the successive plucking, because it's not like yeah. the sweeping strings. It's all just plucking, just pizzicatos and maybe some disparate percussion. It's all very synced, of course, so you take it in all kind of as, as one sound. But after that, the first thing that I observed is just how slowly this progresses. Mm -hmm. It's like watching a, a time-lapsed minimalist painting and watching it unfold, that is. It might have taken hours, but it's condensed here into three minutes and 40 seconds. But because the painting doesn't really have a set form, it's a kind of minimalist abstract painting, even when it's finished, you really don't have a sense of anything distinct happening. It's only subtle shifts and added textures. It's actually a truer form of minimalism than I think we typically encounter in music. No, yeah. And I mean, I would say the only place I've, we've encountered stuff like this in moments was in Owen Pallet's record. Yeah, um, you know, definitely. and in this intro specifically, too, like I got a sense of those pluckings. It felt very compositionally to what he was doing. You his, know? his was a little bit more elaborate. Yeah, this sure. really is stepping it back. Mm hmm. And then the bass, the upright bass comes in, or cello. I'm, it's it's in a little bit of a wibbly field because that may it's, be one of the only things that is drawn and yeah, not and trudging along with that that overall pulse that when, this has. When that steps in, it just perfectly pairs up with the vocal work that's going on right here, and that's something that is almost identifiably Radiohead. You can't hear his voice without making that sort of connection, oh, yeah. even though throughout this album and throughout their career. It changes. His actual inflection does change a lot. And in this album itself, it goes through a couple of different phases. But here, especially when it gets to the chorus, Burn the Witch, you can almost not understand what's going on. It's so drawn out and so prolonged in its delivery. Uh, when you combine that with the strings and with the, the upright bass, I'm just thoroughly entranced with just not even what he's saying, just the sound itself. It, mm -hmm. it does almost break the rule, doesn't it? Because here's a, a, a guy who that I actually sometimes do have a hard time understanding what he's saying because he's so soft-spoken. Mm -hmm. um, but I find that okay because then the the reaction is, unlike I suppose this is the problem we often have in rapping. It's like mm -hmm. rapping if you don't understand the lyrics. That's a problem. That's a problem because they're not really sung anyway. So the point really is the words. The words and maybe the overall flow. But in this case, it you do have something to fall back on, and that is his his soaring vocals mm -hmm. that aren't really powerful. Like, they, they, they're kind of meek in their own way, but they show a lot of passion behind them. It's mostly in the pitch that it really is portraying that passion. Yeah, the, his falsetto that he yeah. reaches. Well, some of my favorite singers are singers who either have imperfect voices or more frail voices. I mean, like, I talk at length about Damon Albarn and how much I love that man. And, like, his voice also does very similar things. He often sings in that way, especially in his later records, with this kind of more frail or kind of lighter voice. You know, think about how he sings as 2D in The Gorillas. Mm -hmm. It's always kind of very limp and very kind of two-dimensional. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he does something else here, too, that I really, really like, but I can't actually explain it without explaining a little bit more about the, the minimalist setup that I described earlier. There's some reasons that I think it's it's a, a truer form of minimalism here than in what we 
typically get and sometimes where we pull the full part in saying oh it's minimalist it's just like right, a pass right, off right, thing yeah. but then again that also implies that minimalist is like a set term I've had like legitimate composers tell me that no one really knows what minimalist is it's just a term that someone made up back in the days of Steve Reich it, it's, it's, it's relatively meaningless but it, there is a tradition behind it and I feel like at least this is closer to the tradition and the context in which it was originally used so some examples here for instance um, just two chords primarily like really doesn't advance beyond that it's just the, the pulse that I described earlier over mainly just two chords. And then by the verse, this plucking here takes on uh, this pattern of working through these crescendos within each and every measure. They gain strength, like for the duration of the measure over the over four beats or so, and then they start over again. They go back to almost silence, just you hear the pulse creeping up again. It's very, very subtle. And then the last thing is that deeper into the verse, we have some slight tonal dissonances that are added just enough to distort that second chord uh so whereas before like the crescendo kind of led us to something consonant now here there's kind of a little bit of mud but once again that's very very subtle it's not you know it's it's not harsh to the ear it's not grating in any way it's just a little bit of something's not quite right and then back to what i was describing before his vocals actually have a way of reflecting the the second thing that i mentioned which is that crescendo he has a crescendo of his own he crescends, but only to like, like I said, a mezzo forte. He's not overbearing. He's not that powerful. He's actually shown and he wants to exhibit the strain in his vocals. That's how you get the passion. That That is a great point where he starts contrasting his vocal work with the way the strings start feeling a little more rapid, especially later on in the track. The combination of them both rising up, sometimes in unison, and sometimes actually apart from one another. I see, true. Is, Overlapping is, is crescendos. Some crescendo at different rates. It's a great way to really just like, just create that dissonance between the two. You don't need to have it really atonal where parts are coming in and they're kind of off-key. Here it's just the idea that he's got these long, drawn-out words to say, but but the music itself does have a little more of a rapid pace to it, only because of the way the strings are coming across. Well, yeah, especially when we get to the second verse, his vocals don't really change that much in the second verse, but the strings do, and they pick up a little bit of their pace, and there's a little more complexity yeah, it's, it's to a, it. It's a much a more there. String, I mean, the strings are completely different, because yeah. alongside the pulse, now you have a full-blown string set. Uh, not full-blown, really just a couple of solo instruments, yeah, actually, yeah. but they're so much more prominent. Yeah. They step forward they step with this right into the front. Like, eerie seesawing thing, just these high pitches and faint harmonics, and they're also, yeah, pretty, pretty dissonant against the whole. But I think one of the advantages of having a two-chord structure uh, and a consistent pulse like this is I think it increases people's threshold for dissonance. I think that it, it allows people to say, like, all right, well, you already have me anchored in, in a couple of different ways so far. So then when you throw in these little things here and there, uh, whether it's the, the strings in, in verse two or whether it's those little dissonances in the pulse, you know, earlier in the first verse, it, it doesn't really matter. You kind of just accept it. But you do get the sense that something is sort of falling apart. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I want to I go back to Tom's vocals a bit, because if you had told me he hadn't aged a day, I would believe you, because I can, yeah. at least to my ears, I cannot tell a difference in his Is that from 20 years ago? No, no you really I, he can't He sounds tell the same. Right, now, there, right there with Anthony Kiedis. They should right, start a club. <laughs> right, of people who don't change. The Fountain of Youth Club. But I really, like, like, there are lines here that really stand out 
to, to the imagery I was talking about before, like he has a line in the song that says, this low-flying panic attack. Like this idea that a panic attack is actually an object that can swoop down at you, catch yeah. you off guard, and impact you. And as and someone who suffers from them, like that, that, that line resonates with me a lot. It's also being used very well in the pre-chorus because yeah. it's, it's, this is a low-flying panic attack. Sing a song on the jukebox that goes... And then the very long, burn the witch, burn the witch, we know where you live. Yeah. Like, it's it's a nice combination, not just of the imagery, but to create even, like, further impact in the actual chorus itself, so that the chorus really does stick with me. The chorus is particularly where his vocals get really soaring, um, and that's where he really, like, reflects the crescendo that I described earlier. That's, that, he had me there. <laughs> yeah. His, vocally, he had me. It's very easy to get wrapped up in that, and, and... What I like about his vocals in this song is they kind of stay in the same place more or less throughout the song. The places that they go, he comes back to. He comes back to home and then kind of steps out a little bit again. But more or less, he's kind of in this realm that he's playing with, which yeah. I like. And musically, I, one thing I have to say about the chorus is that it was a little bit more of a blur. Like, each pluck is less pronounced. Maybe that's why you felt that it was getting a little bit faster, mm -hmm. because it seems more intense. It's also a little bit intense because of his vocals, so it's kind of like a, a trade-off there. But it's... um. It's interesting. I guess the only thing I have to say about this track is sometimes it feels like he banks a little bit on those things that stay the same, right? It allows you to focus on the subtleties, but overall, it's not a, a terribly developmental track. I think it's uh, part of the course from what I expect is an intro track for Radiohead. Yeah, but I don't think that's so bad, especially when it's been so long since your last album. Like, why not no. do familiar for Radiohead, which is still not familiar for and anything else. Yeah, that's true. You know? I and suppose. then And then on top of that, what I like about how the song rap culminates is that it does get subtly louder. Even though the song more or less stays kind of unchanging, the tail end, like, the instruments just kind of get louder they in your thicken. ears. They really yeah. thicken up in your ears. Uh -huh. it, it should also be said that um, we, ha we have someone to owe for these string arrangements. Uh, that would be the guitar player, uh, Johnny Greenwood. He actually arranged most of this for the London Contemporary Orchestra. Oh, wow. So, awesome. yeah, this uh, <laughs> they had some help here. Yeah. Some uh, help and help, some Yeah, some help from a very reputable source and some clout from a very familiar source, their own guitarist. Yeah, sure. All right, let's move on to track two, Daydream. Okay, this is the shortest six-minute track I've probably ever heard. Yeah. There is so much going on just in the first few moments that's really clouded in its presentation. Because of the ambient structure in the beginning, but just on, on the first thing you said right there. All right, so the fact that this seems like it goes by in the blink of an eye mm -hmm. is because, of course, you get just in, enveloped in it. And to some extent, this did break my, my previous point about the first track, how I did mm -hmm. have the one little problem of it not really developing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not even that this necessarily develops, but it's easy to, I guess, hone in or, or harp on those two things, the mm -hmm. two things I mentioned in the last track that don't really change, such as the pulse and such as those two chords. Well, here, it's, it's so much more flowing that it allows me kind of to overlook all the things here that don't change. Let's start off with, all right, so it has the ambient structure in the beginning. It's very, very gorgeous. Just starts off with, like, chimes and synths, and then slowly but surely we get the piano. 
uh, it's those childlike music box tones in the chimes in the synth work that when it they solidify into that uh, piano waltz that mm-hmm. shows up. Which is not just—it's not just a waltz. It was—it was triplets and duplets. Like we were trying to figure it out. Well, I'm we pretty sure. The, no, I'm pretty sure the overall track is in—it's in three. I feel it in three, which means just that 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 lower note in the piano would be a duplet. But the way it kind of coalesces from childhood into something that's a little bit more mature, I guess, in that idea, really, really kind of like. It, it blew me away in a very low-key way. It's mature and yet so simple, but wonderful. I mean, here, just let me go on a little thing on the chords. They barely imply uh, a, a chord progression because they are mostly working with, with intervals and because they're broken chords. They're they're not played together. It's all just broken between this whole, like, duplet-triplet thing. But that's fine with me because what he's doing here he doesn't go all the way it's not a full-blown like f major chord it seems more like an f major seven with like a six suspension with holding the five completely that he starts out with right so just a very thin structure right there and then he moves into a minor maybe suspends the four but doesn't even put in the three so can you really even say minor and then back to f major spending the six again and then finally e minor seven but with no five actually very easy to play but very easy to overlook because it's so you know these sound like complex things that's actually really simple it's just not going all the way with the full chord structure so what you get as a result is these like just tonalities you get you get semblances of emotion these are the kind of things that i mentioned earlier that really move me greatly this is the side of radiohead that i love well, yeah, and I mean, I, first of all, I agree completely, but I think for me, the thing about this song and how it started, like, all of these tones that we're describing, you gave it more narrative than it even had for me. Like, there is no narrative it's here. It's daydreaming. No, 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 but not even that. All I get is a setting. I see these places, like, the crystallized kind of tones show me of, like, a crystal cave, and then when it sweeps out and becomes more piano work, that piano sings to me like I'm looking at an open field, like... I'm taken somewhere by this, but not specifically narratively. I'm just taken somewhere, like it's pictures, sudden pictures of settings. I seem to recall us going down a similar route back in episode 194 when we were talking about uh, Mutant by Arca. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some of the similar things, like the Crystal Cave and things like that. That just says to me that you're just hearing some of the same tonalities or maybe some of the same textures and they take you back to the same place. But I would be really... Uh, hesitant to talk about this album in terms of visuals because sometimes I like when music just sort of lets you sit with the emotion itself and it's, it becomes more about the tones at that point. I, I, I try my best not to go into the realm where we're like crisscrossing mediums, you know, in the kind of way where like a movie would clearly let you associate the music with a certain scene, right? But with music, you have the advantage of kind of letting the music do all the talking, which is so challenging. And my experience with this was just that. I didn't really get any visuals. I just got uh, rumination in some ways. And I I got to dwell on those chords specifically and on his vocals, which we've yet to mention. There's actually a lot to talk about in this track. Uh, His vocals here, if I called them weak in the last track, that doesn't even... Justice for what he's doing here. This is almost like they're. It sounds scummy, but they feel like a film on top of the music itself, <laughs> like the barest of translucent linings on top of a lot of what's going on right here. Because they're so. You sound scummy, or it sounds scummy. It sounds scummy, <laughs> but film. It, it's kind of like the 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 only way I can really do it. They're they're. 
They're taped on top of it. They don't really change the picture, but ever so slightly warp it. Ever so slightly just change change the way the sound comes through to you. Yeah, absolutely. There actually, there's a moment here where in, in, in the first verse, because he, the lines, they take forever. They take mm-hmm. forever to come across because he's so weak he can't even get through you know, the, the, the sentence, the phrase, in a timely fashion. Dreamers, they never learn. They never learn. And by that point, I'm already talking, just in reading that, I'm talking about like maybe 30 seconds worth of material, <laughs> maybe more. Because when he says the second, they never learn, he drags out that word, ne, they ne, right? He just, yeah, yeah. that syllable, he's dragging it out. And this was one of my favorite parts because he, his choice here in the melody is that the second time he says that word never, it's, it's, on, it's on the B and he resolves that to the A, still while he's on the same exact syllable, and it adds the shade of like a thirteenth over the chord that we're in. And then that's right before we end on that that fourth chord that I mentioned before, the immensely depressing E minor chord. There's something about that that just sends you down a dark, dark hole. It probably is where he was. Think of the, the, the words that come after this. Dreamers, they never learn, they never learn beyond the point of no return. And it's too late, the damage is done, the damage is done. That's your whole verse. Your whole verse is just, you never learn, it's too late, the damage is done. There isn't a shred of positivity to take out of that. Nope, not even a no little bit. No redeeming factor. And then, and then the composition actually does change. It transitions slightly into, if we thought we were ruminating before, this is like crystallized contemplation, where it, where it just focuses it. Yeah, rumination. But, <laughs> but it's, it's not just rumination. It's not just wandering your mind. Like, he's starting to actually, like really think about something depressing and I've been there I've done that and this is probably the most enjoyable depression I've had in a very long time well that's what I see as rumination I mean it tends to be very specific you it could be a little bit more broad but I I see it as as picking something very specifically and just unpacking it in your head, usually without even doing anything else in the meantime. Just to uh, foreshadow a little on this album, there is a track that comes much, much later, which we'll get to, a track called Glassy Eyes, which is an expression, of course, for when you're just looking, like you're, you're staring through into an abyss. You're just in the recesses of your own mind. And a lot of this album has that feel, some parts of it more than others. This is certainly a, a high moment on that list. Yeah, I... I also want to talk about on this track how it's the first time I kind of get sucked in in a way where I feel like I'm losing time to Radiohead. Mm -hmm. Like the songs, most of the songs on this record are between five and six minutes, but they never feel like that. Between him extending his verses and his vocals and stretching out syllables and the tones that intertwine and the way the songs are built... You know, in this song, it was, I believe, over five minutes, and I never for a minute even thought that. I This one was like six and a half. And I still f- keep thinking, when I think it to myself, I'm like, was it a t- t- couple minutes? Well, there's like, even something, I'm glad John brought it up first, because there's even something a little bit hypnotic about that rhythm. The yeah. Dun, 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 that's it. You could just get lost in that for yeah. minutes and minutes on end. Um, and yet, it's there still is a shift here. Yeah. Um, first of all, I should mention that it wasn't, it's not even just that. I think he's also trying to seduce you in the meantime before Mm. we get this shift with uh, a lot of sound bites in the background like these um little sweeps that come in usually like split between each ear some of them coming from the left some of them coming from the right or the the like weird vocal interspersed yeah i think he's playing things backwards you know he's playing things backwards and then splitting them up between the ears so it's like he's really trying to hypnotize you um or hypnotize himself in the process and then uh it's like he succeeded because we enter like 
a fantasy land at a certain point here. We just go into this instrumental break between the two verses where the chords, they completely shift. We're in a, a, a totally different key now. Um, lots of ethereal stuff, lots of like augmented chords and things like that. Uh, but also just a lot of, you know, it's it's... It's a, a strange land, all in the piano, and it seems more focused on the piano now. We actually abandon all that other stuff. We don't have the sound bites now. It's just the piano left to ruminate on its own, and I guess reflect what he was originally ruminating on. Uh, it's very strange, but it actually has a, a shade of positivity to it. Like maybe the track is called Daydreaming. That's where he wanted to be. Yeah, but I mean, even that, think about the instrumentation you get towards the end of the track when we get those string flourishes as we go into the outro, but then even... The, the true outro of the song, which is this weird, repeated, reversed sound. Well, you're also skipping on the fact that we have another verse afterwards. In other words, it goes right down the rabbit hole of the first of the first, Oh, that's uh, true, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Prior, and then right, we right. come back to it later. Well, right. Well, but, also, we, we get the, like, those, the, you mentioned earlier that, like, he's singing, singing a line forwards that's then played back backwards. Half my life, I believe it was. That was at the. That was in the outro. That yeah. was in the end when the second Fantasyland segment comes back. So you could talk about the song really, I guess, in four parts. Yeah. In terms of the first verse, very, very dark, and then into the instrumental break, the Fantasyland segment where there's no lyrics what's to speak of, and then the second verse, just as dark as before. But his vocals, his own vocals, actually are answered with this very high falsetto, like a call and response thing, which I think are just his own vocals. Like yeah, but like, the response again, is like really hard to. Un- understand so I, oh, don't, yeah. I don't even I know if i want to hear it no idea what that's doing um <laughs> maybe he was repeating vocals but eh, whatever but the point is then later it gets even more abstract because then we have the return to the fantasy land segment the outro which is accompanied by the strings that you just mentioned matt the the exotic heavily exotic strings which are occasionally like they go through these little glissandos and and sometimes like like hammer home between two notes almost it's it's very strange, but alluring at the same time. And it also brings in very lightly a bass tone to, to really add sort of a level of rumbling uh, underneath everything yeah. else. And one of the probably my favorite part of this actual Most abstract track, part of it. The really weird part, the, the, the line half of my life. Played backwards. Played backwards over and over and over again. This is the closest we get to an actual chorus on this track. And it's more of a... a a call into the wind, a shout into the wind, as it were, but something that sort of like just bounces around and reverberates in this dreamscape that's yeah. going on. I, I it's feel like so I did. Eerie. I did have things that I preferred. Like I preferred the strings overall in this moment because they just they felt deeply cinematic. I mean, hands all praise John Greenwood for that string arrangement. This is phenomenal so far. I never knew. Uh, I, I really have to check into his work, his his work separate from the band because this is pretty incredible. And then finally the outro itself. Yeah, the proper outro, like the actual final moments of the song. After we have that weird backwards vocals we get a sound piece or sound bite that's play clearly being played backwards that to me sounded like a reverse motorcycle sound to steve it sounded like snoring in reverse i'm pretty i'm really pretty sure it's snoring but, but regardless of what it is that's irrelevant for this what it is absolutely undoubtedly is creepy because and it's playing and Not ominous a, yeah. because it's playing over the music and it sort of sounds okay with that but once the music drops out we have pure silence with just this sound bite that plays at least four or five more times 
with nothing behind it, it's truly eerie. Well, the key words that you said earlier off air was it's sort of an uncanny valley sensation. Yes. And that to me is more proof of the snoring thing because of the fact that t uncanny valley usually implies human qualities, which is why I hear the snoring, but because I hear it backwards, it sounds very inhuman at the same time. And that just like put me off a little bit, but of course in the good way. It was a very, very interesting well, effect. Well, the track itself, besides the, the the backwards vocals, there were several sections of the strings that sounded backwards themselves, may or may not be, because Could just the attack just felt a little bit off and a little bit, you know, a, a little bit wrong for what they were trying to do, what they were seemingly doing. So this... This uncanny valleyness is it's permeated in the, in the entire track, yeah. But also, and also because I think you want to take we it were... snoring. There's also the the part where maybe that's the wake up moment. Like I that, think that's so. Well, or, maybe? or is that's him? That's the, well. The, I mentioned earlier that the fantasy land was the place where he wanted to be in, and the snoring at the end implies that that it really is all just a dream. That everything positive is just a dream. Let me let me read the second verse. Because the first verse was undoubtedly uh, harrowing. <laughs> Second verse, this goes beyond me, beyond you. A white room by a window where the sun comes through. We are just happy to serve, just happy to serve you. That That's curious, but it also does seem to show that he wanted to be in a more positive place there. Remember that? That followed the little, for lack of a better term, Fantasyland segment. And here he is painting a much happier picture than, you know, all that first verse stuff. The damage is done. So, of course, it does seem a little bit fake to me. And then you have the snoring. The whole track is called Daydreaming. Like, it's, it's what he wants out of life. Shall we say at this moment that this album has a pretty big breakup thread to it? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's... I don't want to call it a breakup album at all, but, uh, you know... Harrowing. It It should have been said in the beginning, but we like to kind of delay these things. The guy, Tom York, broke up with his uh, longtime partner of, like, 23 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, you will probably find that in Shades. Threads. In, maybe even this, in Droves yes. on this album. All right, let's go on to track three. Dex, Dark. Um... And so we get more piano with this one, but it kind of rolls right in with vocals pretty quickly. And I like, here we're getting something that seems a little more consistent as far as piano, whereas before it was like tones and moments. Well, here we get a nice piano piece that starts pretty much from the get. We well, also get a little bit of a beatbox thing in the very beginning with an well, ambient yeah, background, the, and then it properly begins with yeah, the piano yeah. motif. The piano is just, it just falls. It's just continuously falling down and down and down. It's it more doesn't broken really, chords, really. Yeah, and... That's what, what I kind of meant by rolling, I guess. It is slightly, slightly more contented, I felt, mm -hmm. than where the last track was going. But the vocals feel like... Uh, I don't know if they're softer, they're quieter, or anything like that, but they feel like if there was any edges left on the previous two tracks, they've been filed off right here. There's There doesn't seem to really be any clipping going on at all. And we're starting with a chorus, too, which is even more curious, because A, we don't really get choruses, and B, it's kind of weird that your refrain is what's being the forefront for this track. Yeah, we well, we have, we have had that before, but it's not, yeah, it's still rarer than not. <laughs> but I liked it because the melody, I thought, was actually uh, a lot more engaging. Maybe that's something to owe to the fact that you have the chorus right in front. The, the melody, just in the course of this chorus, as it leads to the final line, was really pretty interesting because it has a little bit of a bouncy quality. And in your life there comes a darkness. There's a spacecraft blocking out the sky. And there's nowhere to hide. 
You run to the back and you cover your ears, but it's the loudest sound you've ever heard. Are we trapped, ragdoll cloth people? We are helpless to resist in the darkest hour. And the chord changes right here at the end. Also, kind We're, of, they, ref, they they echo the exotic strings that we got in the last track yeah. as we move into, interestingly, the verse. You know, it is strange. I guess by the time you get to this, you think you're going to get a chorus, but now we get the content. There's a lot of content we already had, though. Where the bass and the drum sort of flip in your darkest hour, that line right there, what it goes into, guitar strum? Like, I was, like, I was taken aback at a guitar being strum on this album. Like, it was weird that that's where we end up. And everything is still very simple, very nice and low-key. But the flow here, while a little bit faster vocally, I mean, it's still got that soft edge to it. It, It's still got the the lack of angles going on right here. The verse has more... I love what he's saying, though. Yeah, and the verse, frankly, has more intensity than the chorus did. And it's I mean, mostly because of the rhythm work that's going on. Yeah. It's mostly that actually propelling it forward. We, it's You know what's funny is that actually less just two weeks ago we were having this big discussion about the hook, you know, after our Blink-182 conversation. And we were there postulating, even though we know that we had encountered this before, we were postulating the scenario in which a chorus is l- less intense than your verse. And, well, <laughs> case in point. Right. This well, is pretty much exactly what we asked for. And we right. thought it would be so interesting. Well, leave it to Radiohead. Right, but when we get the chorus again later, it does feel more chorusy in that sense. You well, know? the bass it's, is a lot stronger, and right. the tone itself seems to be a lot more concrete. It loses right. a lot of that, you know, finding its way kind of idea that it first introduced. It feels less nebulous than before. Right, but with that, there are some problems, too. I unfortunately hate to break up this mutual admiration society for Radiohead, but this is the first song on the album where I started to have some problems. For example, the drums and the the thump that Steve mentioned earlier, that thing that he mentioned earlier at this point, several Mm -hmm. minutes in, has not changed at all. Hey, at least I mentioned it, so you could complain about it now. Right. Um, But no, it's completely unchanging. And while we've had repetitive drums before that we were kind of okay with, I think here, because they're so much further to the front and in the mix in a way that you can't help but notice them, that was a little distracting to me because they did loop a lot. Even the bass that I really like as well, by the time we get to the halfway point, is also not really doing anything that different. But, I will say as a counter-argument, we loved Burn the Witch for the most part, and that really underwent as little change as what's going on right here. And, I will say from the verse to chorus structure that's going on, we're actually getting an evolution with the music itself. It now, is I, changing up through. I agree with John on that, because all, frankly, all things considered, I mean, I'm actually very glad you brought this up, the, the idea that, yeah, we had to break up the Mutual Admiration Society for Radiohead, because in many ways, our... our our discussion right now is not really reflecting my my uh, comprehensive opinions when I listened for the very first time. Right. And that was that a lot of this stuff, as interesting as it is, note by note and texture by texture, it's it's seems sometimes that he indulges in the really, really beautiful things and then they stay. And you're like, well, I can't have too much of a good thing. We've talked about that in many different capacities. And it kind of applies here because I felt that it, it, they really bank on it. There's some things that just stick around for a long time. And, well, in this particular case, it doesn't even concern something that was, you know, blowing our minds. The percussion was just here. It was never yeah. really much of anything. And, yes, it's true. It just kind of stays in the background. And I always try to be aware of when something feels a little bit useless, feels a little bit of a throwaway, and, and that, that element absolutely did. But to John's point, I do think this is somewhat interesting that you bring it up here because that is, after all, just one element. And overall, I'm enjoying this track and track two 
much more than I did uh, track one, and yet, you know, you, you came back at me for my for my little issues there. Well, I think for me, it's I'm noticing it more here because Burn the Witch happened. And I will agree that... And because you're forgiving of interest. Well, no. uh, Uh, Yeah, I mean, I would admit that I do... uh, Well, yes. I mean, I did make a good point that that track, the way it was and the way it was structured was intentional to bring people into Radiohead. That said, I am not disagreeing that what was there is here and vice versa. I guess it's just I'm noticing it more here. I don't know. Yes, the percussion is a lot quote heavier I mean it's not heavy but it is Finger like you said earlier it's more forefront yeah, yeah. you can notice a beat mm-hmm. much more easily because it's it's just louder so yeah. it being you know more noticeable means that you're getting more of a timekeeper on the track itself yes I mean I did think even in the beginning that it was a metronome at first because it was it's pretty basic it's not doing a lot and so, you know, we're not getting, like, drum rolls that keep repeating. It's, you know, a couple of taps that keep repeating. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty minor thing to harp on, but it was definitely noticeable because, you know, whenever anything just feels like it's indulging in its own thing, uh, I, we tend to notice it, certainly, maybe more than others. But uh, as a whole, there were really only, I guess, conversely, you could say there are only a couple things that I really loved about this track, and those mm-hmm. are his vocals. Yeah. I just really like Absolutely the kind agree. of bouncy but also deadened nature of all this. Like, melodically, how every word at the end of each line in the in the verse was just drawn out that just a lie just a laugh the wet sand and he holds that out and he just sounds like he doesn't even really care you know and i guess this is one of those classic cases where it's like oh it's so cool that he doesn't care (laughs) you know i know it's horrible but it's like it is somewhat engaging in his way because he has so much i guess just character in there even when he's completely beaten no i would absolutely agree the vocals were the highlight for this track for me too and with my minor bitching about the the drumming uh, truthfully it, it wasn't a deal breaker for me either i still did enjoy the song um i have stronger issues with song pieces later in the album here i'm still pretty much on board i i guess this felt slightly less compositional than track two track two set a pretty high bar um in this case you have things that i like like the second chorus when that returns it brings in the bass that was pretty neat um didn't have a bass the first time and then the closing section kind of funky a guitar kind of rocks you out and but that said the whole intro kind of drew on for me it Mm -hmm. struck me more as a jam at that point um we're not totally against jams but they definitely broach that region of of slightly self-indulgent material even if it's funky or beautiful and with what we've gotten in the last three tracks, vocally, we actually continue this sort of journey we're going on with this character in the next track, Desert Island Disc, where it felt like he was kind of softening, softening, softening. This is a little bit of a step to the left. Like, it's it's different because now he's going whisper, but he's going whisper right up against the mic, and this is another vocal style I'm enamored with. Well, he can do that because this is a delicate acoustic track. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't want to completely dismiss this as like, you know, a, oh, it's a guy in a guitar kind of track because it's, it's a bit more quite. complex than that. It's very delicate fit more for, I, I will add a visual here. Like, for instance, I, I was trying not to go toward visuals in track two here. Mm-hmm. I kind of had a visual because of the atmosphere. It felt fit for a mountain man, or fit for a solitary individual in sure. the middle of the woods. Uh, more wonderful chord progressions. Kind of a campfire environment here. Maybe owed to the fact that once you get the intro, the, the first part of this chord progression, he settles really on just two chords. Mm-hmm. But then you sit with that, and it's very good, great voicings. And I guess that made it more accessible for the campfire feel. That said, you have a lot of sound bites 
alongside that that really don't feel natural to fit that environment. But that's overall what I felt. I got the relaxing nature of it. I actually have an argument against that. If you're going to say campfire type of a setting, and I do definitely see it, those those synth pops and crackles that come in really they're brittle they're sharp they could be the popping of the campfire or something of that sort i think that in some sense i did interpret it that way which is interesting because i know that logically you're talking about just like uh sweeps and keyboard tones buzzing things things that sound kind of alien but also peaceful those things really don't sound natural, but I think that when they are just com- kind of combined together and they happen in the background, they're secondary anyway to the guitar and his vocals, that I interpreted them that way. I-, I felt them as crackling in a general sense, which is why I went back to that. Well, and I think what adds to them feeling like crackling is how crisp the guitar actually sounds. I mean, from the moment he starts playing it, it's very, it feels even more grounded and natural. Well, let's be real. If it wasn't crisp, then the mixer wouldn't have done a very good job. Well, all right, fine. But still, I want to talk <laughs> about this guitar because you it's can, just... It feels like you can like just hold it up and just cut it. Right, like it, it feels like it's right in front of the you. Like you, it puts you. There. That was actually you're actually describing the exact image that was in my mind yeah. when I was listening. I pictured somebody sitting directly in front of it, like mm-hmm. like somebody who's who's kind of young, listening to the the old man in the mountain tell his tale, right? Yeah. He's completely enamored, and is sitting like only just a foot, you know, yeah, like, very innocently, yeah. mouth agape. It was very interesting, and, and it, it was fascinating to hear Radiohead kind of take on a folk rock kind of sound, especially since I know it exists in their pantheon, but you know. The those tones that we were talking about on the synth pops make it step outside that genre, which is what I like and why they will always live in this realm of alt or art rock, because they'll take something that they know how to work with and then add radioheadness to it. And I, I want to go with our campfire idea even further. The strings that show up are so light and so background, they could... They're, they're, they're like, literally just they're flavor. Just, they're a yeah. warm, like they're just warmth yeah, on yeah. top of everything else. But there is a big complaint I have for I this track. I put that in track. the same dumping pile as my earlier things. Yeah, <laughs> there is a big complaint I have for this, and that is this is not really a song. This is poetry yeah. that's using music as a descriptor for it. Yeah, that's another reason why I think we're talking about it in these terms. It also feels like it would serve to close down the night after a fairly intense conversation. I mean, this isn't row, row, row your boat here. Let's read. Now as I go upon my way, so let me go upon my way. Born of a light, born of a light, the wind rushing round my open heart. In open ravine, with my spirit light, totally alive, and my spirit light through an open doorway, across a street, to another life, and catching my reflection in a window, switching on a light, one I didn't know, totally alive, totally released. So, well, I, I, I absolutely see the poetry here. I think it still works as a song, too, because it, it reminds me a bit of some of the lighter parts of uh, Under the Bridge by the Chili Peppers and how that song has a very much a poetic and poetry I mean it started as a poem and then got built into this song I get the same sense here and I wouldn't be surprised if this started as a poem and then he was like well let me figure out some music yeah, to kind of frame it with that, but don't don't most songs, you know. Right, and and also the the idea that I don't I don't even consider that a problem. If it feels more like delivering poetry and telling a story than actually being sing songy, I'm actually okay with that. There's I'm, plenty of sing songy songs. I'm okay songs. with it. I enjoy this. I enjoy this song, but <laughs> yes, the, I know how ridiculous that sounds. Sing songy songs. Bring, Shut up! Don't try bring to bring attention on, to it. I will say on this album, this does strike me as a little bit of an oddball because. It's not the same combination of music and vocals and character as 
anything else. This is one where the the vocalist, the person, is supported by the music. Instead of blending the same way, instead of really just being intrinsically a part of the music and the instruments themselves, this this feels like it was a two-piece composition instead of one that really just flowed as instruments were being played, I guess. Well, except for one moment. For instance, around, what was it, 2 minutes, 20 seconds? There was, a, I think this was where the outro began. The the whole feel of this kind of changed. It's like the mixing suddenly spotlighted the guitar a little more. Not that it wasn't already spotlight, right. but something happened where it was kind of lifted up, elevated above everything else. And some of us were talking about this being maybe a little bit separate like it sounded a little divorced from a production standpoint I, I thought I, I liked it I did enjoy it I think it's actually the part where like very light symbols started coming in as well and it did uh, yeah. change it did shift the field and it did a lot to marry the two pieces together again mm-hmm. but I mean it's still like this isn't my highest rated track on the album because well, it's just, also it's talk just about a little bit different the words that we got just leading up to that um, we continued the story waking waking up from shut down from a thousand years of sleep yeah you you know what i mean you know what i mean standing on the edge of you you know what i mean standing on the edge of you there's something so (laughs) interestingly this is a peaceful track despite this inundation of foreshadowing material and i feel that every step of the way in the music especially in that shift toward the end and then his the outro the true outro is different types of love are possible which uh, actually is the only shade of hope I think that exists on this album. So far, at least. So far, at least. All right, let's go to track five. Full stop, that would be F-U-L. So this track, I would say, you mentioned kind of an ominous or darkness to the previous track towards the end. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's really honed in on here because the build here is this kind of low tone, slow, long build. It's Before slow, we really a slow get focus, anything, yeah. yeah. It, it takes its time and the tones here feel more harrowing. Well, it's not, it's not ominous though. I mean, full stop sounds like you're listening to a concert from the other side of a wall. I mean, we've had this in a lot of other things before, just as a, as a tool, I think, in music to give that yeah, impression. Yeah, but I guess it was the specific tones that were bleeding through this finger quotes wall yeah. Yeah, the, sounded kind of ominous to me because the they were just so much bassier. A little... The eerie tones that show up as well, those high-pitched noises that, mm-hmm. that, that begin to, like, like disperse Because eventually through. that effect kind of stops a and little, we're just getting <coughs> random tones. But I'm going to be blunt. This is a case of that self-indulgence that I mentioned before. Okay. I think that it prevented me from really getting an ominous sense because this went on for a little while. And it's not simply well, that's true. it's not simply that it went on for a little while, but I felt like this was losing the minimalist <laughs> finesse that the album had earlier. Uh, in, in the earlier tracks, especially in track two, Daydreaming, where not a lot happens overall in the course of, in the span of a certain time frame, that's true, but things develop subtly. And here, I really didn't get a lot of subtle changes. It was, they were really harping on this, on this point, on this tone. You get a little bit of synth tones in the background, a weak melody of sorts. I only ca- even call it a melody because it was the most prominent thing at that point. And then around a minute and 52 seconds, you finally get vocals. And it's just, you really messed up everything. You really messed up everything. But, he, but when those vocals come in, 
they're not even really vocals. It feels he, like more ambient instrumentation almost. He just says things. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's that's what's going on right here. It's and adding I, tones. That was really weird and something that I keep going back and forth on mm-hmm. between love and hate. Like, yeah. either I just, I can't stand it because I love it when everything meshes together. But at the same time, it really does a lot to get the point across with what's going on right here. It, and I have to respect it for well, that. Well, but it is self like, alright. It, it implies that when that line, you know, hits because we're going to sit with it so long because it doesn't follow up. Right. You know, you really messed up everything. I don't even think he says the whole line in one go. Um, you just get that and then you wait. It's for sparse vocals before you get another another line. For several measures you have to wait. But it implies that when I hear that you really messed up everything that I'm going to feel hurt, you know? And I may, I do, I might. But I feel that some of the other music on this album really would have hammered that point home and really made me feel it. This background setup really isn't doing much for me, especially by this point. At, at a minute and 52 seconds, I'm familiar with it. Quite familiar. And it continues all the way up until about 3 minute 10. Yeah, but I would argue that all of that leading up to and beginning to get more surreal when the vocals come in, when we hit that 3 minute 10 seconds and it kicks up a little bit and we get into what feels more like a song... It, I think it has more impact because of what we trudged through to get there. All right, well, the total amount of sparse vocals that we got were, you really messed up everything, you really messed up everything. If you could take it all back again, break out the tinderbox. Why should I be good if you're not? This is a foul-tasting medicine, a foul-tasting medicine to be trapped in your full stop. It sounds a lot better when it's read in, in, together. Sure. <laughs> but it well, wasn't, it it wasn't a, cited it that way. a minute and a half to say just that. Yeah, and he's not prolonging his syllables or anything like that. So it's just it's spoken. I uh, this is a track I want to hate at times, and I I just can't bring myself to because, okay, we've been saying it a lot. Three minute ten. This is over six minutes long, so three minute ten. Okay, everything starts coming in. Everything gets flushed out. It's and a lot heavier. Built mm-hmm. up, and it's the most. It becomes the most pleasant wall of sound I've ever heard. Well, it's fun in a rock sense, but also yeah. a downward spiral in the emotional sense that he's implying. And you can't really overlook that. I mean, the well, lyrics I mean, are, it's truth a, will mess you up, truth will mess you up, truth will truth will mess you up. It's wall of sound is usually a, a bad thing. But in this case, it's pleasant. It's enjoyable because the layers just keep building. Where you, Previously, when something stepped in, it's almost inevitable that something else would step out or... If a key is changed, something else would, you know, go along to, like, take a nod towards it. Here is just lots of stuff being thrown one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. But I would hesitate. It's, it's really a cluster going on. But I would hesitate to call it a wall of sound. Cluster, I think, is a good descriptor, but it still feels melodic to me. I still, f- like, I don't yeah, just that's, hear but noise. both of those things aside, I don't really feel set up for this. And to which some people might say, well, well then what was he doing for those three minutes well, and ten seconds? I would say nothing. Well, I would say that nothingness, though, gives I'm having an imaginary conversation with people who disagree with me. I always do this. <laughs> I mean, arguing with yourself aside, Steve, I feel like the, that first three minutes is to give impact to the rest of the song. Now, does that mean I like this song? I don't know. I'm still kind of in that place, but I, I will say that once you kind of read the lyrics and you feel, you see how clearly this is obviously a breakup song. There is suffering here. I feel like I will agree with Steve that the music doesn't convey that message enough. You have to read or listen to the lyrics to get it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think it is a detriment to what the song is trying to do as a whole. Let's talk about moments I like then. When he gets to the end of that whole section, it's truth will mess you up when you take me back 
when you take me back again, take me back again, take me back again, which is, is, is interesting because when you hear this in the sparse manner in which he sings, really the only light, line that pops out is take me back again, as mm-hmm. if he's calling out take me back again, which does really stand out as like, oh, oh, you poor soul. Yeah, you sure, know, I've been there and it's, it's rough. Um, but also, like, the full context is truth will mess you up when you take me back again, which is a really interesting message, which makes me, it's kind of like you had to be there, yeah. you know? It's like you have to know the specifics about their their breakup, you know? I'm not going to just, like, sit here and, and play entertainment tonight, you know, and, no, no, and no. imagine what happened. I'm sure you, there's interviews, or maybe it's no one's business. It, the, the album should speak for itself, well, and maybe. it makes me just scratch my head. Not maybe. It is no one's business, Oh, but... it is no one's, well, yeah, but <laughs> when have artists ever been really completely, you know, uh, close about this? I mean, things? it depends on the artist. They find yeah, their way but, through. But yeah, the semantics aside I, I agree I think that it's an interesting place to kind of put yourself but I mean I can speak from experience at least from the my own relationships of the past that I've been in places where it's like you could want something to be over and want them back at the same exact time and not know how to manage it and that's what I get from this but I'm still talking about like a moment that leapt out to me because of a single line amidst uh-huh. all the chaos in the background right. you know you can infer a bunch of things imagine what he must be going through in the, in the moment in which he's you know coming to take say to coming to say take me back again despite yeah. that it doesn't even seem to mean that in context um the, it continues in fact that you really the outro you really messed me up you really messed me up this time yeah. you know of course he's in a bad place but the music as a whole isn't making me feel this not nowhere near as much as let's say the the uh the previous track the the acoustic track i thought was a little bit closer to this and daydreaming was even closer still well yeah i would agree and i would say that you know Full stop comparatively to track six, Glass Eyes, which you previewed earlier. All right. This is a that, whole nother thing entirely. That that song makes full stop feel like a kid's song to me. Like, I mean, just as far as what you feel from it. So, Let's get to it, because Glass yeah. Eyes, track six, this song turned me around on my on my previous train of thought. It braked my previous train of thought to a screeching halt. On a first listen, And a part of me doesn't even know why, because this track succeeded well and beyond that of track two, Daydreaming, for reasons that I'll describe, but I'll let you go. (laughs) All right, well, so I think what I like about this song is how we were talking about in Daydreaming, there was this kind of, I saw this scenery based Mm -hmm. on the music. Here, I get what Steve is talking about, because here, when the synth starts and we get these kind of warbles, like, when the synth starts, it almost sounds like a piano, but then as it starts to warp and kind of warble, it's like it's a... a... It's a piano that's being warped, but the way it contrasts with those very clear strings that step up is a a gorgeous effect. It's one thing on top of the other. The slow piano arpeggiation, then joined by the upright bass, maybe that was a cello, and then joined by the strings, and then finally joined by his very beaten and slurred, potentially even drunken vocals, you know? this is another one like further down the line of even what he was doing in track two his vocals are just like hey it's me i just got off the train a frightening place i can't even do it the way he does it's it's impossible he's because there is there is a rhythm here like he has a bit of a pulse in in this melody that i found equally alluring but it's just on the edge of where music begins and where you know some guy at in, at a bar, you know, begins. It's right. like just between that. Hey, it's me. I just got off the train. A frightening place. Their faces are concrete gray. 
and I'm wondering, should I turn around, buy another ticket? Panic is coming on strong, so cold, from the inside out. No great job, no message coming in, and you're so small, glassy-eyed, light of day. And between the background structure of this and the manner in which he's speaking, I see the glassy eyes, the expression that I said before where you're just sitting and you're staring and you're zoning out to everything that is wrong at that moment and you're not really doing anything but dwelling. And I, the melody was so beautiful in the background and every, everything was just so beautiful. I don't think it, it's, it's really hard to get me down to f- the pure route of empathy as this track succeeded in. Right. Well, and I would say, going back to what you said in Daydreaming about how you didn't picture anything and you just existed in the music. Yeah. The things you're picturing, mm. I couldn't even picture because all I'm seeing is raw emotion or lack of, depending on You're how. saying you were in a position here where you didn't get imagery? Is I didn't get saying? imagery. I was glassy-eyed. Which is good. Which right. is good. I would we, say that's we, a success. And so that's what I'm saying. In most this. of music, I'd say that's a success. But, but I think what really got to me in this song is... You're talking about the first verse here, but when we get to the second verse and the strings really start to impact the second verse, I really start to feel the emotion of this track. I It, it pairs up with him actually getting out of this glassy-eyed stare and like doing something different, like breaking down these sort of cello-perpetuated walls with these crescendos that show up. Where the path trails off and heads down the mountain... Through the dry bush, I don't know where it leads. I don't really care. And the path trails off and heads down a mountain. Through the dry bush, I don't know where it leads. I don't really care. He's going off an adventure. He's he's sort of like breaking free of this mm. malaise with those crescendos. Boom, boom. He's trying something different. He's actually fighting <laughs> against this sort of monotonous, as he says before, the frightening place with the concrete faces. And even still, it's it's still just a little bit of a lie because there's the lines I don't really care that keep getting repeated. He's he's still got that little bit of a, a sadness to it. Uh, that's why the crescendo seem to always end on a little bit of a sour note. But of everything. there's the contradiction because this isn't an adventure. How could I mean the path? Right, no, the path trails off and heads down a mountain. This is a I mean this is a place of uncertainty that he does not want to be in. I no. He chooses this path. He went down this path. He was stuck inside this place where that was kind of soul sucking. But when the second well, verse I... comes in, he's trying something different. It's it's the first real like a quote explosion of emotions that's going on right here. He's trying to reach out from from inside somewhere else. I don't know. He's trying to at least break free from what's going on. I disagree completely. Those same lyrics to me read as he's going deeper inside where the path trails off. It's trailing off and he's trailing off inside no, himself. No, 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 oh, no, no, no. Let me explain something. Let me explain something because I need to, like, the context of this argument and where it's coming from seemingly out of nowhere it all surrounds the fact that John feels a, 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 a something, something positive, something, some light at the end of the tunnel in a song that clearly both me and Matt are just wretchedly uh, it tears us apart in, into pieces, specifically when those strings come in later. Uh, they, they cut like a knife every single time they enter. This was like rumination to the max, and I thought it was a, a purer form of songwriting that had yet to be achieved on, on an album that has, frankly, a lot of fluff in the middle, I was starting to feel. You know, even when I thought he was doing a really interesting idea, there was a lot of fluff there, a lot of times where he would just indulge on, let's say, one little thing, one musical thing, and expect that, I 
I guess, you know, personify the whatever's going on. I'm not saying every single track in this album is necessarily pertaining to the breakup, um, but, you know, when it's there, it's there, and that stuff cut a little bit heavier than some of the other stuff. Uh, and this was, like, at the, at the peak of that, and it was in that exact moment that John said, like, oh, no, I feel something at the end of the tunnel. I was just, I was as glassy-eyed as he was. Okay, the, my best... Like reasoning behind this for the listeners, if the, and I know Steve has actually watched the show, but Matt hasn't. But I'm going to explain the titular character, Mr. Robot, from the series. He's a very deadened character, very unemotional, very introspective. The entire series, he basically talks to the person watching the show. It's a great show. I'd recommend it. Very uh, cinematic. As but, cinematic as TV has yet gotten. <laughs> but with this deadened character, every once in a while, he gets emotional. He has these outbursts. That's what happens here. That's the crescendos. That's the second half. He's actually starting to punch through this rumination that's going on. He's going more than just dwelling in the same place where he just he's buying another ticket. He's just turning around. That's what he's saying in the first half, that he's stuck in this place. Here, he's off the path. He's going down the mountain. He's going to a different location, one he hasn't been before. He's reaching out from this core of of being very closed and very just, you know, playing it over and over in his head. He's pushing forward to something else. Well, I don't know what you think true, like, sadness or rumination really is, but a lot of times I feel that to include the strings right there. It, it, it tends to come in waves. Sometimes even when you're not doing anything, you have that wave of trying to, you know, rumination is really a matter of working through your own problems. You are trying, trying to see a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's something you have to do, I guess, to zone yourself out from everything else in order to come to that point where you can finally overcome or at least just, you know, do the next item on your list of day-to-day activities. Where if it's that crippling where you can't even do that, that's a problem. But the strings are kind of like that wave of the... Of the the depression that pushes you back and starts it all over again. So to me, there was that, that was thoroughly a part of it. And that's I see it as the exact opposite. I know Matt's pretty much on the same page as Steve. Uh, I believe you give me a counter argument after as soon as I'm done. Because I know we're going to get into our argument, and I won't respond. You can have the last word. <laughs> but I have to finish this one. I, I feel the opposite. I feel like the depression that has been crippling on this album, this is the first time he's going from an introvert to an extrovert on the entire album. And that is where I'm getting, like, maybe there's hope. It's not an emotion of hope, but maybe there is a chance for him to move past this rumination. I don't know. It's all in the first person. It's all, am I wondering, should I turn around, buy another ticket, panic is coming along strong. This is a guy in his own head. I don't see any uh, extroverted to any of this. But I guess what the question comes down to is, the, in the end, is do you like the song as much as me and Matt? Because we could argue from dusk to dawn about his true feelings or what we actually get from it, but if you like it on the same level as we do, despite that you're feeling something completely different, well, then that would kind of negate it. I'm still happy we had the discussion, but is that true? I'm almost there. I think Daydreaming was still better. And I know, I I know Daydreaming second. I know no. you disagree. I, this song, it just cuts me in a way. Look, it's no secret I, I latch onto songs that make me feel lame. I know. But this, this album saved me, I mean, excuse me, this track saved me from an album that was starting to show signs of pretentiousness. I just, I, there was some. Maybe you won't agree with that, but that was what the track did for me. I don't agree with that, but I will say <laughs> that this song, it, it just it hit me in a place that nothing else on the album has. And I agree with Steve that those forced louder, louder strings in the second verse are absolutely cutting like a knife. They are meant to represent nothing but pain, and I don't get a sense of 
of hope we're getting beyond this the second verse is just falling deeper down the spiral to me all right well i'll, I'll hold off my previous uh comment about it be starting to feel pretentious there are other uh, times a little bit later where that might come close but i i don't want to imply for a second that there was anything pretentious about the writing process of this album i think it was all very 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 natural yeah. but i do think that maybe sometimes in an in an extremely natural setting or in something that is coming so much from the heart you can occasionally lose sight of let's say a few of those things that just draw on a little bit longer than others but as there was nothing on this album yet quite as tight as glassy eyes and the same can't quite be said for track seven identicate because this takes my point about them you know harping on certain things just a little too long to the max even perhaps a little bit more so than full stop while we may have liked the previous track for completely different reasons this one i think we all dislike for the same main reason it's a little bit on the masturbatory side. It just seems to like to ramble on for quite some I, time. I wouldn't even call it masturbatory. I'd call it scattered and inconsistent. It just seemed a little bit of everywhere. I wouldn't say inconsistent. There is yeah, enough of a through line okay. there. So then maybe not con- inconsistent, but definitely scattered. Scattered, it, it, yeah. It felt like people were taking handfuls of stuff and throwing stuff at stuff. Like, that's the basest way I think I could describe well, it. Well, in each case on all these tracks, I'm just kind of like letting it wash over mm-hmm. me. And in each sure. case, a lot of times, they do start out just as minimalist as I described earlier and it's like okay this is slow you have to have patience for this I enjoy tracks like that and many occasions they revealed something later yeah. on that really really rewarded you for for sitting through it all and I didn't get such a reward here no. I mean the drums and the guitar for the start just got a little bit tiring now you can hear his vocals coming through in the background like like down in an empty hallway or something or from across a, a, an echoey warehouse and a lot of times these vocals are just a little bit out of tune that's that's fine or they're just dissonant next to the not even quite chords here of this song and then uh you know time drags on by a minute and 58 seconds this all gets a little bit more intense we have a very strange shift something i did like two minutes and 30 seconds this strange like vangelis-esque harpsichord cascading chord sequence um but then the section following that is the part that uh, that was the the unreward, the the disreward. It was it was uh, annoying, frankly. A, a single guitar line that just persists. It's on its own little solo. Sooner or later, it sounds like it's also being doubled. And I'll bite as a guitar solo idea because it was so wonky and so um, persistent, staccato, kind of in the forefront, but not with a lot of other elements to support it. I thought it was interesting on its own, but context is key, and there was really no connectivity here. It just felt like it erupted out of nowhere, and I didn't really feel it by the time it came about. I just don't like this song. I don't like it. Um, well, that was the clinching moment when I looked back on everything else that had transpired earlier, and I felt that there wasn't even really a semblance of reward there either. I should say... It's all context. Saying I don't like it is not enough. But I think for me, besides the sudden changes... <laughs> you really didn't like it. <laughs> besides the sudden changes and everything Steve had just spoken about, I think, for me, it almost felt pointless. Like, I, I, I don't... I don't I don't know. I don't think it was pointless to the album. I would. I wouldn't go that far. But I think it was pointless as far as what it was trying to accomplish. I just. I'm not quite clear 
what this song is supposed to be other than someone who's completely lost it and to show the scattered nature of someone who's completely lost it. And something interesting that you brought up, uh, the fact that the track title, Identikit, is something that police use in order it's to for, assemble it's who for they need? It's ass- for assembling sub, uh, the suspects, yeah, perps, yeah. when uh, someone comes in saying they've something's happened, a crime has been committed, and they're describing to the police what they looked like. So the facial features get kind of, like, uh-huh. assembled. And kind so, of like he's trying to, I guess, assemble the person in his past or who yeah, he needs or to be. Yeah, or deconstruct the person from his past. I, the music actually portrays that fairly well. Sure. The, the fractured nature yeah. of, his, of his psyche versus... Like, the rebuilding, I mean, that might be why everything seems to coalesce in one way or another. It It's it's a journey, but it's a journey through, like, different personalities. I like parts of it, but as a whole, it's hard to follow. I, I'm not really just writing this one off because there are bits and plugs that show up in this, like... Yeah, I really like that section. The experimental at, at synth that shows up. The yeah. experimental synth area, I really... I can't, I can't describe it. Vangelic, I enjoy it. The Vangelis harpsichord yeah. thing. Love that. I, no. I really I really enjoy it. I, and I don't feel like the flow itself is broken through the track. It does have some hard shifts, but the main undercurrent of the track itself is there. The rhythm keeps it mostly cohesive, though, like I, like I said, the transitions are, are halting, but that's okay. That's okay for... The theme of this track. Well, it's back to my expectations. I mean, surprise, surprise, Radiohead is doing things that I like, but is it nearly as well composed as the previous track? I'd say no. I just, I I can't see it as a whole working outside its actual theme. Like Matt said, as it's, it's a good idea for a piece. It's just not good enough for... For me, it comes I, I guess to, it comes down to art versus taste here for me. I think this the, is this is a full art piece. I yeah. think this is artistically where it is on the album, what it followed, and what it's trying to do. I get, but it's something that I can simply enjoy on the simplest terms. I don't. And while the moments that you guys both point out, I totally hear and I totally think are great. It's not enough for me with this track. Well, message-wise, I think it's clearly trying to piece together. The identikit is him trying to piece together a love that is not as perfect as he wants it to be. Mm-hmm. Later on in the verse 2, pieces of a ragdoll mankind uh, that we can create, that we can create. Pieces of a ragdoll mankind that we can create. But when I see you messing me around, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want... Uh, I don't want... Now you see me messing around, I don't want to know. Um, I don't know. A lot of repetition on this one. Broken hearts make it rain. Broken hearts make it rain. Broken hearts make it rain. Sweet-faced ones with nothing left inside. Sweet-faced ones with nothing left inside. And it takes a lot of these lines yeah, even back in this again. case, his lyrics are fall on the... You know, like, I got it. I got it. But yeah. not... I mean, it... He changes the portrayal of these lyrics with the different sections. The, yeah, I mean, it, it presented this way one time, this way it's, another. It's an art piece. I appreciate it for that, but that's as far as I really want to go with it. I barely even for that, especially for the for a track that comes closest to uh, a title track as we get. Yeah, because much. The, the the vocals in the beginning that were like echoey, you know, came with a moon shaped pool. Mm-hmm. Dancing clothes won't let me in, and now I know it's never gonna be, oh me. Oh, me, oh, my. <laughs> All right. Tracks eight, the numbers. Chaos. Out of chaos emerges rock. So the the <laughs> intro kind of sucks you in pretty quick because we get 
pretty much a sense of a classic rock vibe here. First a little bit of a piano intro where I mm -hmm. wasn't quite getting that, and then by the time the guitars come in, it was full-blown classic rock, Zed, Led Zeppelin, uh, Pink Floyd, all of this Chris, stuff. Crosby, Stills, I, and Nash. I wanted to let this song wash over me in a kind of 60s, 70s smoke haze, right? Um, but honestly, I have to say, uh, the riffs here weren't quite as strong for me. Um, yeah. The riff, I, the riff, rather, as there was really only one. Uh, just yeah. one well, over which there was a lot of jamming. The, you could say though. riffs because it does peek its head out in different sections as it goes along. It doesn't stay each 100% instrument, Each instrument has its own flavor. And so it, this was cool to jam along to. It felt a little bit... In inappropriate, maybe? It was out of place for the record. It does, so, considering the content here of the lyrics, which I'm sure John will get into in a moment, but I'll give a little overview, is this is a clearly a protest song about climate change, um, which, mm. well, Not it's clearly. seemingly a protest song about climate change. Thank you. <laughs> um, which Tom York has spoken very loudly and very emphatically about. And so... If that's what it's about, which it, it is a little ambiguous enough that maybe it's not, but if it is, I would say that's a little out of place because since every song seemed to be tied to personal experience and personal life and this is about uh, something you're taking a stand against or for... That seems just a little disjointed for the yeah, overall all right. theme. I'll but, 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 but we call upon the people. The people have this power. The numbers don't decide. Your system is a lie. A river running dry, the wings of a butterfly. And you may pour us away like soup, uh, like we're pretty broken flowers. We'll take back what is ours. Take back what is ours. A lot of this, like, return to the earth stuff, you know, what's, what's yours is mine. It, yeah, no, it fits that. Which seems but, a little separate but, from anything else, but I think there's a lot of cohesion yeah. between p putting things back together. Sure. Yeah. There's that, and there's also the fact that the Earth gets treated like a woman, and and sort of a warm, safe place kind of a woman. Well, Mother Earth. You know, well, no, not just Mother... Phrase. It's not Mother Earth, per se. It's not like... The, the life spring or something like that. I wouldn't even say warm woman. I would just say warm partner or... or exactly. And that's, thank you. You got hit a nail on the head. Partner. And that's why it's not 100% out of place for me. Okay. I can see that. I would say that it's... This I is like one of your loose metaphors. I, I would, I would say. say that... Yeah, no, but what his point is, we are of the earth. To her, we do return. That's it's explicit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... I think that it's, it's a sneaky way to put in a protest song. Sure. While still making it loose enough with the album yeah. to connect through to it, sure. But I'm I'm not with Steve on this one musically. Steve's got funk, I've got classic rock, and this is a jam session. I can't really complain about. Right. It's not great. You're saying you have a soft spot for classic rock, so you're completely down with the whole first section. Where I was like, oh, okay, this well, is well, not even the first fine. section, but and throughout, I, throughout, I, it just felt like a a fun jam session that just I I wasn't really feeling a lot of bravado or something showing up, which would normally turn me off. So here, well, that's it's just, just it. enjoyable. I, no, I didn't get the... But maybe it lacked the, the bravado, but I didn't really want vibrato either. I just felt that it was musically, forgetting the genre period, I thought it was a weak riff for m the majority of it, until the end when, of course, it all comes back around because then it starts getting a little funkier, <laughs> like out of the classic rock, and then it was like this crazy fusion of both because by the time the strings come in, it was my guilty pleasure. Um, only funk in the sense of 
what the bass was doing and what the strings were doing because they it was the strings in the way that I typically like strings in funk. I will say they that appeared that way here. I will say that that moment towards the end was probably my favorite moment in the track. I thought those strings were really awesome. The bass was really awesome. I am somewhere in between you guys, but it's still like, not well composed. Like it's still the the strings, even though I love them, they were a little bit arbitrary. And then we were talking about this earlier, and one of us said like the track was a little bit arbitrary, and we already agreed with that. But we're still better off for having the strings. So I'm not going to pune the fact that the later part of the track was my favorite. And I will say the point that I was trying to finish was that, <laughs> was that, you know, I'm in between you guys on this. I liked the song. I don't think it was completely unnecessary, but to the same, I don't think I indulged in it as much as John did. But John openly admitting he's got a soft spot for classic rock. Yeah, so and, I, and I know it's not, it's, it's, this isn't Hendrix or something like that. Like, we're not getting, like, masterpiece going on. I just, I enjoy it on a very... Not superficial, but it's it's nearly there. It's for almost me. there. Yeah, it's I really think there we're just me. about at superficial level for this. Uh, but it was okay. Track nine, present tense. So we're back to that kind of island feel we got a little bit earlier in the record. But as Steve points out, it was actually kind of more of a bossa nova sound, pretty much from the beginning. Yeah, did we get an island feel in the beginning? A little I'd, bit. In, uh, we, in Desert Island Disc, there was a, 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 a dashing bit. of tropical mm-hmm. going on. But right it's there. way more intense. Desert here. Island Disc. All right. Well, here, yeah, this is a lot more straightforward bossa nova. Very interesting percussion section. Now, what I did like about this is that you barely even register the fact that his vocals come in because yeah. they're so soft in general. It's Tom York we're talking about. So. I, I, they're just kind of like you open your eyes and they're there. Uh, they're just floating along in, until they actually take off and he does this crazy falsetto thing as my world comes crashing down, which kind of comes to embody a lot of the things that were already present on this album and now suddenly you get them a lot heavier. But you have to wait for this mm-hmm. and then suddenly it's like, oh, Tom York is the, actually the central figure of this song, whereas before you kind of just grooving along with this bossa nova feel. Well, what I like about also the bossa nova feel here is typically when you get something that's Finger quotes tropical. You get shakers, but they're doing the same thing over and again. But there's texture to this stuff here. What they're doing with the bossa nova sound here isn't just straightforward. Like every other instrument they've touched on this record, more or less, they're doing some interesting or unique kind of things with it. And so it adds layers to that sound that I'm really interested in, at least in the earlier part of the track. And I absolutely agree with Steve. I think Tom York's voice also here is doing things. The, the flow of the whole track, including his vocals, is just doing something that's really engaging in the, at least the first half of the song. I'm really kind of wrapped up in it. I'm kind of enveloped in it just because it's not dancey per se, but it kind of makes me want to move. You know, maybe not dance, but it, it well, definitely makes you want to move. He says, as my world comes crashing down, I'll be dancing, freaking out, deaf, dumb, and blind. In you, I'm lost. Uh, That's the hook. So it's interesting that um, it comes back to that. The if we're all talking about trying to find like a light at the end of the tunnel in this Mm -hmm. album, any shade of something to latch onto in the wake of this breakup, um, if that is indeed the whole point of the album. But yeah, here is actually the only one where it's kind of present. And in all, overall, this is not a track that I feel depressed during. No, at all. not at all. I just think, kind of group with it. Yeah, for sure. Second, it's actually, yeah. yeah, the the lyrics. I want to touch on that a little bit sure. longer. Sure. I won't turn around when the penny drops. Lines like, I won't get heavy, don't get heavy, keep it light and keep it moving. Like, he's actually not talking about, you know, love and loss and everything like that. He's he's actively de- denying the, the, the depression and the 
like it's almost superficial in some ways that he's just going almost la 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 la. I can't hear you. This is not. I'm separating this from me. This is anti-rumination. Yeah, this like, is this is keep your mind on what you're doing right now. Follow your do lists, do your 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 chores, your checklists. All these things will keep you sane and keep you going. But he goes back to the hook. In you, I'm lost. In you, I'm lost. Especially in the outro where it gets repeated four times in like weirder ways, where he's like. He's like being forced to feel it. Like, I just find it funny that he, you know, you, the line you just read, I won't get heavy, don't get heavy. He already got way, way heavy. heavy. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Glassy eyes. <laughs> like I said, like I said, la 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 la. Yeah. But uh, I, I will say, by the time we get to towards the end when he's repeating it, the, the, the Boston Nova sound, while I like it and it's different for the record, doesn't really change that much throughout the track. It kind of does start to loop on itself. And, like, if I'm going to have something loop on it, well, sure, I'll take it being Bossa Nova, but still, you know, you're you're, no, get, you're I mean, getting a little repetitive. It's not like, yeah, the Bossa Nova is just the core underlying beat. You know, yeah. that, that it's meant to be just a foundation yeah. other, on which you can build, and there's not a lot of building here. There's a couple things I did like. This was the secondly I was going to mention. That's the around verse 2, the background, the background choir. Mm-hmm. This was really nice because... It, I assume, once again, this is uh, Johnny Greenwood's work. Uh, he was the arranger for both the choir and the strings. So he probably did most of the arranging here. And the choir really does have a choir feel, which feels redundant. But, I mean, beyond that of simply, like, being made up of multiple people, the timbre of it, the reverb, it, the reverb is almost cathedral-like. And then there's the texture of the guitar strings that shows up here. You actually get the, the, the screech as the finger runs along the string, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that really piercing noise, which is very standout for what's going on. And I like that it's a little bit of a, a dirty lie on top of everything else. All the smoothness that's going on, you're actually hearing something that is legitimately real, like an actual physical thing you can't quite control, and is really just disconnected from the music itself. I felt like those were kind of purposely left in. Like, you, you need to hear those screeches and those those scratches going on. Ah, ah, ah. But I also just reinterpreted this. Because in on one sense, you know, we've been talking about this in terms of the post-breakup, like, all right, keep doing what you're doing so you don't dwell on the thing that's already happened. Could this actually be in the relationship? Like, don't don't look back. Don't try to focus on the problems. Uh, I won't turn, or I like, I like the imagery here, I won't turn around when the penny drops. Won't stop now, won't slack off, or all this love will be in vain. Stop from falling down a mine. It's no one's business but mine that all this love has been in vain. Sounds like he was still in the thick of it here. Like this, this track is more track. a denial track, right? Where you just la 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 la, not in the aftermath, but during. And in that case, it's sort all... Sort of like a flashback. Yeah. It could, it's, I mean, it's I mean, still, it's still a denial track. Yeah. Like, I still feel that's going that's on. That's so I'll agree with you there. It still brings home the, the point, which is, was already apparent. In you, I'm lost. In yeah. you, I'm lost. So it was all doomed and or uh, dooming <laughs> in the process of being doomed. And then we get track, track 10. 10. Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Sailor, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief. Okay. To, at, in, in, a, in a way, people can hear it. <laughs> Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Sailor, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief. Yes, that is the entirety of the title. It is. That was fine. <laughs> it was. It's eight jobs. We get or eight it. You people. can do patter songs. You can do a patter song later. But specifically, <laughs> I want to talk about the title. I English nursery rhyme. It's speaking. I want to say a little bit to identikit earlier. It's yeah. eight people going on in this one title. 
very different people as you go along. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. Like, there's a lot going on just in the title itself. So what is that saying about the track? Uh, I suppose theoretically saying that he's multiple people at once, has to be multiple like people for the sake of something working. People? Yeah. All right, let's, then let's go to the lyrics, the lyrics first before we get to the music in this case. Verse 1, All the holes at once are coming alive, set free, out of sight and out of mind, lonely, and their prey. Uh, the ones you light your fires to keep away, crawling out upon, expending, and all you have to do is say, yeah. All the birds stay up in the trees, all the fish swim down too deep and lonely, and they pray. Honey, come to me before it's too late. The ones you light your fires to keep away is crawling out upon expelling. Expelling instead of expending, or maybe it's both. Um, and all you have to do is say, yeah. Ah, uh, that's interesting. I, I I don't know what the hell it's about. Nope, nope. No, I, anyone I like close? Just Usually weird. we have an idea. <laughs> it's the the creatures of the night coming alive and reaching out I to him, I think, more, a little bit. Or maybe his demons are coming back I in think that first it's more verse. manic than that. I think he's just kind of... All right, then this was a bad idea. Let's go to the music first. Maybe it will tell us. <laughs> so, the pulse here, the static in the background, the I electric mean, yeah. keyboard, and, and all these melodies. You know, you don't even get a sense of what I just read because they're so long and drawn out. Yeah. This case we've had earlier, here it's even more exaggerated. The song kind of drones even at times. Like, it's just tones that are being dragged. But those uh, electric keyboard that shows up, I like how... It doesn't actually occur, but they feel off-key at times. Just a yeah. little bit. Just just a little bit of, you know, taking a step a little bit too far. Well, they stood out. Low. Yeah. It, was, it was nice and subtle, but yeah, it still stood out. I also liked that around the, around the two-minute mark, the electric keyboard was supplemented by a piano. Just like a soft little bass line in the piano, right? That's all it's doing, but it's, it's, it's on top of the electric keyboard. It didn't replace it. But overall, everything about this song is just so soft and so delicate. Even when the strings enter, they're not as, you know, bombastic as they had been previously. They just yeah. creep in uh, the glissando in the, the, the standard exotic fashion as they did before. But that said, deeper into this track, they do take off. But at first they didn't. At first they were just there. And later on, they the, the, the outro for the last remaining section of this, the strings, this track was all about the strings. Yeah. I don't know. The they, way- they are bombastic. In fact, more like Maurice Ravel, you know, in that vein. Anything but subtle. I would say that this song is another one of those songs where I'm not even sure I like it. It's just the, the way it's kind of uh, coming together and, and the piece. It's one of those things like you guys said in previous song, there are pieces that you liked. And I can definitely like the bombastic strings towards the end. Like I, I thought those were really cool in moments. But overall, I was I was just not sure what to do with this song. I, I could see why... Because it's still got that duality that uh, Full Stop had. Uh-huh. Like, it had a, a first section that didn't do much, that didn't change much. But unlike Full Stop, I was really invested with that section. Like, I was totally into it and, and grooving along with, of course, his gorgeous vocals. But that second section was so, like, at the same time fulfilling, at the same time pent up. Like, as the strings first stepped in, like you said, they don't go big right away. They feel yeah. like they're being just, like... Someone's holding them back and, and uh, loosens its grip ever so slightly as it goes along, and mm. it, they just become more and more cutting and over and over again. They keep like they keep hitting me. This song just like I get fulfilled as I'm listening to this song because the the true crescendo, the cr- true ending as it goes along, the last time the strings get hit, it's just I feel complete at that point. I feel like it did everything right. The build was perfect for me for that piece. Like this 
this song is fighting with Daydreaming to be my favorite. Hmm. Like, the combination of the two. Daydreaming is just that long burn with with transitions throughout it. This one is just a full, long build for me that I feel, like, eminently fulfills what I needed it to do. I can't commit to it quite as strongly as you. It was actually more in the pile of the tracks uh, that I talked about in the beginning of the record, which I had a lot of nice things to say about, but didn't feel quite as comprehensively. I do think that, um, even though we haven't really talked a lot about what this means, because it's probably one of the more abstract songs on the record, it uh, is kind of a little bit of a last-ditch effort, not nearly as much as what we get in the final track, but I think this is saying... It's trying to say, if, if things don't change, we'll slip. So, I don't know what the hell the title has to do with that, but that's, uh, that's where I am with it. Track 11, True Love Waits. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. So oh, if, boy. If I didn't think there was a track that could compete with my love for um, uh, Glass Eyes, this is definitely one of them. True Love Waits. So... We get a song that, by all means, should be considered a piano and a dude track, which we lambast sometimes because they can be a little cliche, but that's not what this is. The piano work here, especially at this point, is probably, for me, the most spot on that it's been for the whole record. I mean, I just love the piano work here. It doesn't feel like a guy in a room with piano. It feels like a piano finale to this this story, and... I mean, we're getting tones here that are resonating as powerfully and shaking me to the core as much as stuff did in Glassy Eyes. Yeah, this is another one that's kind of back down the route of a successful minimalist track for me because it does so little, and yet it does so much, it seems. It's a piano track, sure, right? But it feels like it has a touch of ambient tones in the background, mm-hmm. or maybe it's just a really thick reverb, in which case we are just hearing reverb, the, yeah. the piano and the vocals. But this is another one with really killer chords, or is it just tonality? See, you just voicing. Sometimes I really just like Radiohead for their voicings, you know? Uh-huh. I, I That's what I'm starting to realize, I think, is uh, why a lot of people go back to them, because it brings rock a little bit of vibrancy, you know, in in terms of what they choose. It's uh, I know that Johnny Greenwood, Greenwood's for sure has a, a big music theory background. So that could be coming from his side. Who knows? Point is, the the chords themselves in this track really don't go many places. It's another one where it's just kind of like, it's the same cycle. But the tonalities themselves, it's it feels like two pianos might actually be overlapped. In mm-hmm. which case, what you end up with is a, a, a more steady piano that um, is more in mid-range, right? And it's that's slightly more in the forefront. That seems what was uh, dominant more in the beginning of the track. And it's a little bit more rhythmic. And the, the, the notes punch out a little bit further. Just, again, like maybe suspensions, what I described earlier. Then later, you get the the floating upper register piano that kind of overlaps, and occasionally the notes come very close, and you get certain little dissonances over that. And what you land with is is probably very, very interesting voice. I wish that I had actually analyzed this, but there's just something that I can't quite describe that I feel at the moment when those sync up, and they sync up in, like, consistent rounds, so I feel it almost like every three seconds, just to, you know, throw out a number there. Every three seconds, I just feel that wave, a similar wave sensation that I described back in Glassy Eyes, which is why I, this is so close, despite the texture is so different. Actually, that uh, that higher register that you mentioned, the way it actually progresses is one of my favorite parts of this track. It was something that is so hard to hear, but when you do recognize it, especially when it's interspersed with everything else, when it does start to stand out a little bit more, it, it, it seems to tend to actually reach a very nice high point, 
and then just lie ever so slightly sour on top of that. And that combination makes me really view this final track as it's not full depression. I feel like some progress was made in this breakup, in this, like, broken heart. But it's there's still a long way to go. Like, that little phrase right there just says so much to really cement the ending of this album. And it's in this final track that I agree with you. I may have vehemently disagreed with you in Glassy Eyes, but this track, yeah, in the piano, there's something very peaceful about that. I, something that I can't, once again, that I can't quite put my finger on. It still, it still hits me just as emotional, just as intensely, I suppose, as Glassy Eyes did. But whereas the strings kind of embodied a lot of pain, I think the piano here kind of is his his figuring out, I guess, how to deal with what he's dealing with, it's still rumination by every stretch, but there's just maybe something a little bit more peaceful about it. Let me just read the lyrics, and then uh, maybe Matt has a retort. I don't know. Um, I'll drown my beliefs to have your babies. I'll dress like a niece and wash your swollen feet. Just don't leave. Don't leave. I'm not living. I'm just killing time. Your tiny hands, your crazy kitten smile. Just don't leave. Don't leave. And true love waits in haunted attics. And true love lives on lollipops and crisps. Just don't leave. Don't leave. So while I hear what you guys are both saying about the instrumentation, and I would agree that there are hints of hope in the instrumentation, these lyrics show complete hopelessness and almost disenfranchisement of love. And, like, I mean, especially the lyrics, the last lyrics that, that Steve read, the... Uh, and true love waits in haunted attics, and true love lives on lollipops and crisps. It's saying it it exists in places where things that don't possibly don't exist exist. You know this land of ghosts or manufactured like ideas. lollipops and crisps, or and like 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 emptiness, empty right. calories, or right. useless. And so, like for me, I feel like. Maybe the instrumentation is this mask he's putting on to show faux hopefulness in a place where he's still not quite there yet, but he's trying to get there. And so the instrumentation represents what he wants, where he wants to be, whereas the lyrics reflect where he still is. Now that's interesting because I thought it was just the opposite. Like, I actually felt that it was more, and granted, maybe this is going out on a limb, but like, the music is representing where he actually is. You know, a lot of times people say things at a time when really they are kind of healed, but their brain is still running on the train of thought, the, the, the hate or the embittered place that they came from, and they say things like, just don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. You know it's done. You know it's done, and you know you're moving on, right? But in which case, the lyrics are lying, but the music is real. And considering that's how I tend to view music as a whole anyway, I, I, I kind of fell into that very easily. When the music makes me feel something, when I felt that peace, I felt that it was done. And I, sh- I saw the light at the end of the tunnel that, that John had claimed he saw back in Glassy Eyes. I did, but, but in, I didn't, in the last track. I didn't, I didn't claim that the, the, it was the light at the end of the tunnel. That was off yeah, yeah, air. Yeah, yeah, I changed I it for on air. <laughs> He's been different. slowly moving toward our side, but well, in his the, own way. But there is something I want to bring up before we kind of conclude this track. And that is, in 2008, the track Present Tense was written. Burn the Witch was written in 2000, and this track, True Love Waits, dates back to at least 1995. Ah. This track itself was chosen from a 20-plus year discography that it didn't exist anywhere else. It was put here to be the cement, to be the final period on this album. 
So in some ways... What, the, did it exist in its final form yes, at the time? Yes. Yeah. Mostly. Question mark. Question mark. There's a, probably been minor changes, but, but for the most part, this track has existed for over 20 years. So on the one hand, I could see it definitely being the perfect period on this album. But at the same time, I would take the lyrics with just a grain of salt because they were written a long time ago, a long time before this specific event, though it does match this specific event exceedingly well. Well, I would say, though, that I think what I like about this song as a whole is that it's the first conclusion we've gotten to an album in a while where you, you're dealing with breakup or loss or heartbreak of any kind, and there's no neat conclusion to the end of it. it there's no, like, going off into the distance, all right, it's, There's a, a sense of hopelessness still. Overall, yeah. I agree. Um, and, and, but... I, and I enjoy that as bleak as that sounds i like this kind of way it kind of goes with a whimper you know this idea that even if there is some hope there's not a lot of it it's very little but the musical emotion you know is a little mm. bit more varied than that sure i, think. I would um, say and, and I would ju- agree. just to put a final point on the um it being written you know more than 20 years ago that doesn't necessarily change anything for me because i can easily envision a circumstance under which a, a, a songwriter a composer would write something that he's either well either he was going through a different thing at the time or yeah. that he didn't go through anything at the time but he put himself down a route that he wasn't necessarily going into because that's the mind of a composer often can kind of place and himself he, in certain 20 shoes. years later he discovered that it was it's perfect like, for something else yeah you keep you know it's uh which i would give good planning yeah i know i mean that's just just actually kind of does credit to this track itself that like in 20 years his style has gotten so solidified that yeah maybe it hasn't changed too much and i think that might be a great thing, but at the same time, like, he can still, you know, write something that really does resonate. All right, so we come to our wrap-ups. I have to say, uh, considering this was, like, the first, really the first Radiohead album that I, like, immersed myself into on, well, in the Crash Chords sense, and that I went down it in the route where I didn't Oh, let's not lie. I knew I was expecting certain things. I was wary of certain things, but I was overall pretty optimistic. I tried to go in clean and then just take it for what it was. And I did get the the sense of a band that, despite what I'd already heard of them by this album, had, had honed their sound, but also a sound that changes all the time. This, in many ways, we call it alt-rock. This could just as easily be art-rock, because that's just as vague of a term for anything that steps beyond its constraints. Tom York has never been shy to do that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I've grown to be a fan of Radiohead. Still don't have the history there, so I, I can't, like I said in the beginning, I don't have the same nostalgia. But this is a very easy album, I think, for especially anyone who's going through a breakup to relate to. You know, you could place this back in in various times of your life, even when you were going through that, even if you're not going through that currently. And what it will give you is something that's not cookie cutter. It's not a, 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 a pile of cliches. It will give you something very fresh and very patient. It's not going to do something that I'm actually very tired of on a lot of albums recently, and that is, oh, try to drag you out of it and lift you up. I don't think that's always good. Maybe it's good for certain people. I think it's very good to come to terms with, all right, what was wrong? Who was wrong? Think this out, and then later move on. But for now, it's okay sometimes to be sad. Dwelling is fine. It is fine. Um, This is an album that is not shy to do that. Uh, Musically, 
there are some hauntingly beautiful ideas on this album. Ideas that, at times, times, I think, are relied on a bit too heavily. There are occasions where they stand up on their own, and in those occasions, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, like I said in the very beginning, shades of things in Radiohead that are totally up my alley and that I've seen in their successors and their predecessors. It's all really, we're just talking about tools in the end, not specific artists. Um, but other times, other times in this album, they're also running to the ground. Uh, and I can't really overlook that entirely. I just, I recall the first listen and it kind of remained true for successive listen, listens. Uh, in, in occasions, it, it went back and forth where I was like, ooh, that time that track was better. Uh, that time that track was worse. But overall, there are times on this album that I just know that even from the first listen all the way to now, I was feeling it drag a little bit amidst a beautiful backdrop or where they kind of departed the beautiful backdrop. I was just wasn't unsure about certain little ideas in this album. Maybe I'm not understanding it fully. Um, maybe I'm not empathizing in the right way. But I, I think on one level, that's a little bit of a pity because of the ambition behind this album. I know a lot of people aren't going to view it this way, and you should just say, look, take a beautiful album for what it's worth because there's so many things that this album does right. But I guess because of our self-awareness now, we're just a little hypersensitive to certain things. And I have a pretty big familiarity with the genre. Not just alt-rock as the nebulous genre that it is, but, you know, art-rock and things that are sticking with familiar textures but pushing them in wildly different directions. Um, pushing rock in wildly different directions. And occasionally there is that post-rock rule, that, that, that tra trap of, you know, letting atmosphere guide you too heavily where you're just ignoring those elements that are sticking around too long or are dragging it out or are art for art's sake and then it's just a little bit of a it takes me out of the moment here so for me this track this album does have specific tracks that i would kind of pull from it and it absolutely includes the last track it includes glassy eyed and it definitely includes daydreaming as well those three tracks are masterpieces uh the rest are okay to good that put, puts me in a weird place this is easily in the fours um but i i, I it, it definitely could have shown a little more uh sense of self as it went or went down those darker paths and and a little more frequently i think this is a four point i'm gonna steal your rating from a couple weeks ago here i think this is a 4.35 <laughs> you may met that think that's high enough for this album but minimalism is really, really tricky, and uh, I'm impressed that he did it as much times as it as he did. I just wish it was, I, I wish it was a little bit more fluid throughout the record. I suppose, four point three five. All right, my that turn. was your. I think you did that in Gojira or something. <laughs> uh, that sounds about right. Sounds like something assholeish I would do. Yes. Um, after I did it many a time. <laughs> many, many. A but time. now you're getting crazier. Many a time. Anyway. Um. All right. Radiohead for me. So. You know, I've always, like I said, they're a greatest hits band for me. I like the hits. I like, I like what they can do. Tom York still has one of my favorite voices in rock because, like Damon Albarn, as I mentioned earlier, he he seems to represent a path of singer that I relate to because I, I can't sing exactly like that, but it it feels like my voice. It feels like the it's, way it's singed. it's a voice you want to sing like. Right. Well, it's even why I related to like Eve Six and Matchbox Twenty. These singers who have these voices that I feel like it's my head voice. If I were to sing a song, that's where my voice would go. 
And, and, and Tom York is another one of those voices. And it's why I still love Creep as much as I do. Because I, when I sing that song, it feels like it's me. Um, there were moments on this album, too, where I felt that way, too. I, 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 overall, I like the album. I do. I think even the tracks that I, I struggle with, like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Sailor, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief, and Identikit, and a few others, don't hit me as strong as the Glass Eyes and a True Love Weights of the world. It still doesn't stop me from really enjoying the record. Um... Which feels weird to say, considering the record is not a super happy record. But I agree with Steve. I think sometimes with an emotional record, you need to stick into a place where you're going to be sad for a while. Michael Kill has a song that's a single that's not on his new record, but it's, the chorus is, it's okay to hate your fucking life. And what the song's about is, it's okay to be depressed. There's nothing wrong with that. When people tell you, oh, just be happy, or just get over it, it's not that big a deal. What is to you? And you should be allowed to be upset or sad. And I, I think this record really has a strong representation for that. And I like that. I like that it really kind of sticks to its guns of I'm in this place. And I'm going to kind of, you know, uh, ruminate in this place and exist. You know, even marinate, you know, <laughs> in this place. I like that, actually. Yeah. You know. You feel needed. the devil just standing over you, basting you. <laughs> You know, I'm making light of. It, it's, it's just. I agree with Steve though. Which God, it hurts every time I say that aloud. Come to the dark side. You know, the music did leave me wanting a bit, and that's surprising knowing Radiohead because they do some interesting musical things. But I think maybe also part of it is, you know, Paranoid Android is a big thing to stand up to. You know, there's not going to be another Paranoid Android. There's not going to be another OK Computer. Right. But that's what I'm saying. And so to hold it to that standard is a little unfair. But I I, I will agree that there were moments where the songs felt their length. The first half of the record, not so much. But towards the end, you know, there were moments where I was like, okay, I like this idea and I think it's a great idea, but where else is this going or could it have gone? Um, I have no complaints about his vocals. Even on the songs I don't like, it's still Tom York, and the vocals are fan-damn-tastic. And varied. And varied. Um, he's a versatile singer. Um, but yeah, I think that I'm kind of in the same place as Steve, though I'm going to be a little more generous with my rating, but I'm kind of I'm kind of pretty much in the same place. I think this is not upper echelon because it still leaves me wanting. And at the end of the day, I just... I'm not getting from Radiohead what I've gotten from some of the artists that I've rated much higher. So for this, it's a 4.4 for me. You know, I, I like it. I would definitely go back to it, but I don't know how regularly I'd listen to it because this is an intensely emotional record. I mean, easily the front runner for my pick for most emotional album. You know, there are definitely some of my most emotional songs are on this record. Easily, best moment might show up. Sure, too. yeah. Um, but it, you know, best record. I just it's not quite there. But that's where I sit with it. Uh, first off, before I really get into the meat of mine. I'm going to steal a little bit of what Matt just said. And you said the, the voice. The, you're talking about voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, just remember when you're reading. I don't know if this happens to everyone, but I know it happens to enough people that I'm not crazy. I read books. A lot. A lot of books. And, and we, yet you and struggle was, with the English language. I, I read. I don't speak. There's a that's, difference. That's true. But when I'm reading, I don't hear my voice. <laughs> and it was recently pointed out to me in like some sort of mean or something like that, that I don't hear my voice. And it, it hit me that 
yeah, that's not me reading. That's somebody else's voice. And in a way, I'm going to get all deep and emotional, philosophical. In a way, like this album and the vocals that's going on right here, that's one of my voices. That's one of the voices that I hear when I'm when I'm reading something, when I'm getting to an emotional scene or when I'm enjoying lyrics and I'm, I'm not saying them out aloud or anything like that. I'm just kind of humming them to myself. There's no music. I hear a voice like this. I hear a cadence like this. I hear the emotion behind it and the inflection and the range. So it hit me really hard that I, I kind of realized that Radiohead as a whole and this album does a lot to, to sort of represent an eternalized voice for myself. And then there's the other part. I, I think I was a lot more favorable on a lot of these tracks, but I don't know how far I am from you guys. And there's um, a major reason for that. And that is something that did come up earlier, because we have to mention it. Mutant by Arca, which I gave a five star and was my favorite album thus far this year, and it still kind of is. It was immensely personal and immensely varied. And I see that going on right here. But I do know that Arca pushed it further for me because of the scenery that was involved with it, even without it really needing any scenery or any like story. I saw things. I enjoyed things. I, I felt like I got to know a person in depth. And I got to know a person here in depth, but not to the same extent. And I think that is the real, quote, failing of this album, is that I don't feel like I was pushed to the same level as... That five. Because well, I would well, say that this isn't doesn't feel as personal. I feel like it's almost over personalized, almost to the point of fictionalized a little bit. And that's actually thank you for stealing my words. Since You're I stole a few of yours, um, that's that's exactly where I'm coming from. Because I agree with what you, what the two of you have already said. Like it it just needs a little bit here, a little bit there. But I feel like I, I definitely got a lot more out of it mm -hmm. in, in a lot of places. So I'm just over the hump into the greats at a 4.6. Okay. All right. Well, there we are. All right. Yeah. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, so I want to take us back to something that Steve and I touched on in, I believe it was Daydreaming, um, about this idea that music can take you somewhere. It let you see things. We touched on it a few times. Besides there, but yeah. most recently. Um, or sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you just, you're in the music, this world of music, this vortex of music. And this idea that, like for me personally, if a song I really connect with is doing something to paint a picture, I want to see that world. I want to I go to that place. I want to go to there. It actually retrospectively became a bit of a problem for me in an Arca. Yeah. Or or maybe a problem with your interpretation because I right. saw like the ice cave and I like I kind of feel the same thing, but I almost wish you hadn't said it right. because I loved just sitting there with the music itself. Like I always feel like it takes something away from the artist because musicians really do try to keep you away. Sometimes, sometimes they're explicit and they're especially mm -hmm. you know fil film composers need to be specific. But uh, I think I think they really want to do the other thing. They want to send you into into the vortex of music. They want you to just connect with the chords at play mm -hmm. right there every every voicing should be a, a, an emotion and, and a world of its own i am I'm, I'm worse than than matt is i'm significantly worse than matt is because i think i say i see like 
a thousand and a half times on every single podcast. Yeah, but you do. don't say the the setting he's painting, you know, as much as Matt does. I, I've setting, said it a lot, though. The scene he's but setting. But I see, I see, I see. Instead of, I hear. I hear this, I hear that. I like to say, I see things. Because to visualize it gives it a little bit more, for me, character. A little bit more, like, concreteness so that I can better define the object or the song or the item that we're discussing. So when we're talking about music, for me to actually design what the music would visualize allows me to better explain what I'm listening to. Yeah, and the same could be said that when I go down my, you know, uh, chord rants, you know, that I'm, I'm taking people away from the visuals and that it's not, I'm not connecting in any special way, but I'd argue just the opposite for a certain, for a certain type of listener, for instance, I do that for the listeners that like music analysis, that like, you know, music analysis, analysis, theory analysis, because for them, that's everything, you know, analyzing those patterns and the special things he's doing that most people are not, I think is very important. I think it makes it special. And, and when you really break that down and you see what is different about it, I think it, it puts it's in perspective just how different they are in the grand scheme of things. And that's why when I come across musicians that do something so powerful, I don't visualize something, they truly hit like that special level. With mm. um, the one I love to cite because it's still on my iPod and it's still probably one of my most played songs, Evergreen. Scale the Summit. Scale Summit, episode 67, album The Migration. <laughs> like, that track, like, I, I don't see anything. I just listen. It's one of the few pieces of music where I just listen and enjoy it for that. Well, are. it's funny. Like Steve said, in Daydreaming, he, he didn't see something. But for me, I felt that way about uh, Glass Eyes, where he was visualizing this person... This person staring blankly. Yeah, I guess that was a. I guess that was a visual, but it was really more of a superimposition. You know, I became the person. Thus, am I really seeing anything? I'm feeling it. Then it becomes right. empathy. Whereas I said, I clearly just felt it. Like yeah. I was, I, I was the glassy-eyed person. So I get it, and I think that there's. I don't want to sound cheesy, but there's room for both. But I think th there has to be room for both because if we only interpreted music one way. Then what would be the point well, if we, we didn't? If we, we got change... into a fight over glass eyes, yeah, and this has like, like always <laughs> been true. I mean, right. there were always cases back even in like the classical era where a lot of times, like you know, if it had a certain title, if it fell under a certain form, if it was a nocturne, then it was meant to kind of put you to sleep a little bit. It right. was meant for the nighttime. It was meant to for you for you to picture certain things under under the moonlight. You know, in bed getting tucked in, like. Obviously, things have purposes, but then there are also other pieces where they try to keep it, keep it as abstract as possible in order to kind of make your brain work. You know, I think that's the advantage that you get from pieces that uh, try not to go down the route of things that are recognizable. You might say, well, that's alienating. Just like I said, well, maybe when I go on chord analysis rants, that's alienating. I don't think that it is. I think that it makes us think harder because that's how we really get out of boxes. That's how we think outside the box and and take our brains in new routes, which could apply to other areas of our lives. I mean, you could extend this into the uh, the argument that you know music makes you smarter, for instance, just listening and learning. I believe it, it's kind of in that vein. Sure, and I mean, to, to your point about when music and media can kind of warp or affect the imagery to the point where you don't even really see the song anymore, you just see images, is think about all the classical songs that have been used in Looney Tunes cartoons, like Ride of the Valkyries, while still a song that well, that's, represents... that's conditioning. Right, and, but now, because of Kill the Rabbit, Ride of the Valkyries is 
imprinted with that. Or think about yeah. think about a factory scene in any Looney Tunes cartoon. I know you can hear the song that plays in that. Which is which existed the, the before Ru- the that. Rube Goldberg machine. Right. Yes, that's that's the <laughs> soundtrack. But that music to existed first, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who were you know got wrapped up in that music and didn't really picture anything. But then once Looney Tunes used it in that one scene. Of course, you pictured it, and so I mean, it was probably met by say, some with some mixed feelings right, by the artist. I'm exactly. sure. You're like, I mean, hey, all right, people, my my song is recognizable, but now people will never see it in the way that I may have meant it. But right. at the same time, I mean, since very, I mean, last hundred years or so, the tracks and pieces and music and compositional work isn't just symphony number such and such. It is. Named. I mean, you're already giving a visual. So either if you want to be abstract and keep it outside that box, you give it an abstract name. If you want to, Ride of the Valkyries. I mean, you're calling it Ride of the Valkyries. You're already putting certain expectations sure, sure. Yeah, I'd into that, what's going to be paired. That's right with there that alongside the, the the nocturnes and things like that. Right, that's right. even more specific. In fact, like well, that you see with the impressionist chicks thing. with swords flying through the air, raining down hell. You that's know, what that track will. That's goes, what that piece will say. This goes back to uh, Debussy actually hated the term impressionism, you know, right. because I guess he felt it implied. I don't know what he felt honestly, but I do know that there were cases where either he didn't want people to get impressions, even impressions were too much, were too close to his, uh, too specific and away from the music itself. Uh, he didn't even want impressions. He just wanted no the music, the music, the music. Or it was the exact opposite because he also wrote a lot of pieces that were specific, like the sunken cathedral and all that, where you picture a giant cathedral actually being sunken beneath the ocean, like a, like Atlantis esque, and the music followed this exactly. So in that case, uh, yeah, if you're picturing anything different, you're doing it wrong. Uh, sure. I mean, I will say also to John's point, like something that. I think um, Radiohead did really well for this record, is there was never a moment where I felt like I needed to look at the track title and go, I need to infer what this is about from the title. I didn't need that. The music... Uh, Tinker Taylor. No, even still... It's quoting a nursery rhyme. Yeah, but but I didn't need that because the song was abstract enough that that didn't even matter. The point is is that I'm not searching these titles for meaning. I'm just accepting the titles and looking for meaning in the content itself, which is, I think, an impressive... Uh, you know, uh, accolation to the writing. And so, you know, I think that, I think ultimately for me, I'm starting to see more of both sides of it. Whereas I used to kind of just latch on to scenes and want to paint pictures. I'm starting to kind of get more swept up in the music now. I think most artists wouldn't be terribly picky. I think they would be happy if you went toward either one or the other. As long as as you're feeling anything, then they'll... They're gonna feel good and have a have a good dream, <laughs> right? Well, good I, dreams, I, happy thoughts. I think that's right. I think that they Successes. want you ultimately to think about the music and not just take it at face value. They want you to get something out of it, which ultimately, I mean, that's what music is about. Well, we'll be challenged well, on this front, I'm sure, many a time. Well, I'm sure. we always get something out of it. It just may not be what the musician author really wanted. Really often intended. Yeah, yeah. that's true. All right, let's start. Wrapping up the show, um, and before we get to what we're doing next week, which is Steve's pick, Steve, of course, has a spam for us. Stop being so creepy about it. You don't want them to... Uh... Uh, all right. They're creepy enough sometimes. We don't need you being... Well, unless you want to fight. The gray eye issue. Is that it? Yeah. Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton wrote us? Louis Louis Vuitton Vuitton himself, and he's pitching his product, The Grey Issue. I guess it's an issue of their magazine. Uh, Okay. 
their catalog. Wait, does Louis Vuitton have a magazine? I don't know. They I'm have a catalog. Sure Louis Vuitton a catalog was what somehow. I mean. A catalog makes I don't think Louis sense. Vuitton has a catalog. That's like, oh, you have a Macy's catalog. No, Louis Vuitton probably just is shown in Windows. And I think you know how brazen it. that is, though? Just on a post, the gray eye issue. You want this. You want this. Buy it. <laughs> Spam bots don't think very much. Maybe, but maybe they Louis don't think, does. If they thought, we'd be in trouble. Where let's Because there's up. trillions well, of Well, thank them. you, Louis Vuitton, for listening to our podcast. We appreciate fight it. with Louis now. Nah, right. I got beef. Anyway. There's one Spam <laughs> bot per person on Earth. It's like the Matrix all over again. Oh, God. No, don't do that. Steve, what are we doing next week? <laughs> Personalized. <laughs> We're getting all, like, hyper-focused here. All right. We are doing Stranger Things Have Happened by Claire McGuire. Um, this is an album that I just kind of stumbled across because I was going through a range of albums in uh, any of the many sites that we look at just to see what new albums are coming across. And I was getting pretty disheartened because, frankly, it was one, you wouldn't think I'd be getting disheartened, but it was one post-rock album after another or one alt-rock band after the other. Kind of like a pop variety of it, though. And you think, like, oh, yeah, that's up my alley. I'm a little over it at this point. Yeah. Much like today, I'm a little bit hypersensitive. I'm starting to see the tricks when atmosphere just goes a little bit too far, as nice as it is. I was just, I was blurring together, blurring together. And this was the first one that stood out in a crowd for very specific reasons. One that it was seemed like a slightly different genre. But then also, as I went through the album, it kind of slipped back into old patterns. But then it brought me something really nice again. But then it went back into the old patterns. And it was a back and forth kind of album that was a little bit more volatile than I've seen us get recently. And I think that would make for an interesting discussion. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, don't, I've not heard the artist Don't sell it hard or anything like that. Right, exactly. Oh, no. I'm selling the things that I liked really hard. <laughs> that, and as well, you should. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes, what I did, and I leave it at that. All right. Well, on that shocker, we will leave you with, of course, like we do every week, music is life. And, and life, life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.